Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. What a day. How about that? NBA draft, baseball trade deadline coming up, and who's waiting for the deadline today? Let's make moves yesterday. And the Jazz trading down and taking Jared Butler, most outstanding player in the Final Four, but reported heart condition, had to go through a special panel of doctors to be okay declared in the NBA. And so a guy who was certainly a first-round pick, could have been a late lottery pick, and we'll never really know how that would have gone and where he would have played out because once the medical stuff hit, man, NBA teams took that seriously, and he plummeted. And the Jazz pick him at number 40 after trading down from the 30th spot, making a deal with Memphis and picking up three second-round picks. They use one here. The other two are future picks down the road. So reaction, people. Hop on Facebook. What do you think? Hit me up, David DJ James, or on Twitter at David DJ James. You know, Butler, um, an, an older guy, uh, he's played three years of college ball, and there are only seven seniors taken, which is a record low for the draft since the common era. I don't know, I think of it since the draft started in 1966, which is a little more than, what, going on 55 years ago now? Roll the dice here by the Jazz. I don't know how the hell it's going to work out. Obviously, Butler shouldn't have been the 40th pick if all of the things are equal. I mean, that's clearly obvious. He really plummeted with the health stuff. So the Jazz have got to feel pretty good about uh, his ability to play, and if not, well, that's a second-round pick. There you go. So we'll get to the reaction coming up. Uh, Justin Zanuck, Jazz GM, we'll hear from him coming up. Um, plenty of other trades going on. The uh, the top of the NBA draft, that was pretty straightforward. Cade Cunningham, number one to Detroit, as expected. Probably the first surprise was Jalen Suggs, Gonzaga's star, uh, not going fourth. He goes fifth. The Raptors pass on him, so he ends up in Orlando. Other than that, Jalen Green second, uh, Evan Mobley third. That was That was pretty much what everybody expected, so... Barnes over Suggs was really the first the first surprise in the draft. Um, a lot of foreign guys drafted. Some guys coming straight over. Some guys who come over for high school or college. But the international uh, the international player continues to make an impact. We'll see where that goes. Um, but for Jazz fans, uh, the gamble, the value pick—I don't know what you want to call it. We'll uh, we'll get your reaction as the morning uh, goes along. It's a, I guess it's a tough one for a lot of fans to evaluate because based on talent. You can't really say anything. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, great pick. Uh, but his health and what came out of the doctor's evaluations of him and this heart condition, how serious is it? What is the implications there? Pretty hard for us to, to judge that one. We'll hear from Justin Zanuck coming up. All the NBA or all the uh, other NBA news, well, the big news, of course, Westbrook is going and Kyle Kuzma. Uh, the trade is done. The Wizards um, and the the Wizards send Westbrook and, and get a haul back. Now, where are the Wizards going to be in the East? Is this going to change anything? Can the Lakers count on Westbrook? He puts up stats, but is he going to win? Is he going to win in the playoffs? Um, a team that needs shooting gets a guy who's, well, at best a streaky shooter. They give up Kyle Kuzma, Montrez Harrell, Contavis Caldwell-Pope, who did some nice stuff for him along with Kuzma and Harrell, and the number 22 pick in the draft. So... 
the Lakers going all in on Westbrook, and I guess now with the salaries they've got, it'll just be who can they recruit at a veteran minimum uh, to play, and then can they keep their three stars healthy, and how will that work? So, but was, Russell Westbrook is an LA guy, so he's going home. He's got to be. He's got to be pumped about that. Now it's funny that the big basketball trade, Washington sending a star to LA, and then you got baseball with the Washington Nationals sending the Dodgers Max Scherzer and sending him Trey Turner as well. So just loading the Dodgers up. I mean, the rich get richer. Now, the Dodgers, and I guess that deal isn't quite finalized, but everybody thinks it's done. Uh, the Dodgers are three games behind the Giants. They've still got work to do. They're the favorite to win the World Series. And, of course, you can do it from a wild card spot where they sit now, but that is the hard way. So we'll see if this gets them. Gets them over the hump against the Giants and gets them into first place there. Giants are three games up on the Dodgers and six up on the Padres. And that was hardly the only deal. Uh, the Cubs, are they going to break them up? Are we going to see more more players dealt? But uh, Rizzo from the Cubs to the Yankees. So the 2016 Cubs, they break the jinx. They break through. But now it's looking like uh, everybody's on the move. That's all that's been talked about in baseball for you know, a week or two here is that this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and sure enough, um, Anthony Rizzo to the Cubs, a um, couple minor leaguers in the deal, and apparently a pile of cash. Uh, there's a report that it's like $5.5 million, uh, which, you know, Rizzo's got a big deal, so I guess the money's just there to to balance that out. Um Couple shockers there. There you go. Those are those are big names changing hands. The Padres were supposed to get Scherzer earlier in the day. That was all the talk. Instead, the Padres ended up getting a relief pitcher, Daniel Hudson, from the Washington Nationals. So uh, that's a uh, a smaller move around around the edge. Uh, Hudson's thirty four and he's had a couple of Tommy John surgeries. But hey, one one more arm can't hurt, I suppose. Right? One more arm can't. Can't be a problem there. All right, we'll get into all the rest of it uh, coming up. But, man, plenty plenty going on. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. More in a moment. Stay with us. Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280, The Zone. Well, at the Olympics... Uh, Shocker, man. Simone Biles pulls out, and was she going to go back-to-back as the Olympic gymnastics champion? And then another American wins it anyway. And uh, there's been plenty of talk about Simone Biles and why did she do it and where is she. And Riley Jensen, who um, comes on our show all the time talking about football, is a mental strength coach and works with Utah State, Weber State, Real Salt Lake, uh, works with some of the local high schools as well. He joined us yesterday to talk about it and about some of the pressures on young athletes and the way they're reacting, the way their parents are reacting. And here's Riley. 
Today has been really stressful. We had a workout this morning. It went okay. And then just that five and a half hour wait or something, I was just like shaking, could barely nap. I've just never felt like this going into a competition before. And I tried to go out here and have fun and warm up in the back went a little bit better. But then once I came out here, I was like, no, mental is not there. So I just need to let the girls do it and focus on myself. Had Simone Biles right there pulling out of the gymnastics competition. The U.S. takes the silver. We're going to talk with Riley Jensen here in a minute. Riley Jensen, former Utah State quarterback. Worked here at the zone for a while. Now he's got his own company. And he is a mental performance coach working with uh, Ralph Salt Lake and working with uh, Utah State, Weber State. He's got other clients as well. And he joins us right now on the Smart Rain guest line. July is considered Smart Irrigation Month. To celebrate, Best of State Award winner Smart Rain has given away free smart controllers to commercial properties until the end of July. Hosting costs not included. Visit smartrain.net or call 877-346-3333 for more info. Riley, good morning. What's going on? that time of year i can smell football in the air we got the olympics going on it's all kind of fun stuff yes but now there is controversy at the olympics because simone biles arguably the face of the olympics coming off four gold medals in 2016 and a fifth medal that was bronze pulls out of the competition and that shocks people and hard to believe but this has been politicized already i mean why wouldn't it be it's gymnastics naturally it's political and I'm curious what you think when you watch this, but I have to say, I feel like a judge here. I'm going to give you very little latitude here. I feel like I'm in a movie. <laughs> but I, we're not Simone Biles. We're not in Japan. We're not talking to her. So all the people who popped up on social media with these opinions about what's wrong with American youth, I'm like, have you even talked to her? How can you, how can you know from half a world away? Well, I guess you don't have to know to pop off. You get to just pop off. So I don't know how much you want to speak about that. I Eventually, I want, and pretty quickly, I want this conversation to go to, you know, parents of high school athletes and college athletes, and because we keep hearing about this. But first, do you have anything on what you heard from Simone Biles, anything that with your experience starts checking boxes? Well, I think I listen. I think the the most important thing for us to remember here, and with the athletes that I work with, whether they're professional or high level college athlete athletes or Olympic athletes, it's that these are human beings, right? With with real feelings, with with real thoughts, with you know, they're, they're not made of Teflon. And I know there's a lot of people out there wondering, you know, is this a is this a real win for mental health, or is this a is this a big loss for athletic grit? And I think I, I think it's way more nuanced than that. And and in in the world that we live in, and the Twitterverse that we live in, and the Instagram world that we live in, I know everybody wants to have like a a, a clear cut picture as to what's exactly going on. But I think you're right. I think this is nuanced. I think this is. I think first and foremost, I'm just concerned for her. Um, I'm there, there's one side of me that's super proud of her for for you know being able to speak up and talk about these things and this may be hundreds of thousands of lives of young men and young women that she's influenced to be able to at least speak about how she's really feeling or he's really feeling and and i think it can be really really helpful and and then there's you know there's the older group there's the old school group that's like yeah but whatever happened to grit whatever happened to fighting through and 
And like you said, we don't know. I mean, we just don't know. I, I would hope that, that athletes are still battling through things and doing those sorts of things. But I also would hope that we've changed a little bit and that we're willing to um, recognize that the mental health and the me- mental stability and the mental toughness of these athletes that we're working with is, is paramount. And that it's something that's really important and that's a key component to success and a key component to performance. And, and we're seeing it right before our eyes. Well, I find it hard to believe that I was reading stuff about grit last night. I'm thinking, well, you probably don't win four Olympic gold medals without grit. So she's got it. In that regard, the fact that we're discussing here someone who is a proven winner at this level removes a piece of the conversation that might have accompanied another athlete at this level who was at this level for the first time. So I think oh, yeah, that I think that changes. I mean, she's just too accomplished. No, no question. I, I mean, well, it would be hard for me to imagine even a person who hadn't won four gold medals like she has and hadn't had the grit and and the the winner's attitude that she's had in the past. It would be hard for me to imagine somebody that had put five years of their life into trying to get to the Olympics and trying to perform at their highest level. I mean, I can't imagine the you know the the crevice that she came up to that 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 she had to analyze and say, you know, I don't, I don't think I can, I don't think I can do this. I don't know if it's right for my team. I don't know if it's right for me. It's a possibility I could get hurt. There's all kinds of different things going on. And I just can't even imagine someone who hadn't won a medal that that would just back out for no reason, right? For no reason at all. I mean, these people are competitors. They want to win. Of course she wants to win. And so, it's it's really easy to you know to get on our platforms and it seems like everybody has a platform lately and and just kind of to say like oh yeah this is this is the way it is and I, I can't believe she did this or or this is the way it is I can't believe that anyone would ever criticize her right? I I mean I can kind of see a little bit of both sides but I think what you have to do in that case is you need to take off your fandom hat and put on your human being hat and just say. I'm I'm worried about this on a whole level. Like, what what are we doing to athletes, and what are we doing to high school kids? What are we doing to college kids? That's making them feel this much pressure that they can't even perform in a sport that they that they love. I talked to Tim Lacombe about this a while ago, and I was asking him uh, how much more time were you spending on athletes' mental health at the end of your coaching career than you were at the start. And he was just like snorting, making noises. He couldn't even speak in words. So much more. I don't know. 80% more. A lot more. And so, and then subsequently talking to other coaches, well, he's just right in line with what everybody else is saying. So is, is something happening to this generation of kids? And a lot of people go straight to social media and phones. And I'm, there's other things. Could there be environmental factors, food factors? You know, th- there could be a lot of stuff. Is there something I, I, going on you've seen in this generation? Because you played in a previous generation. You know, you're older than these current athletes. You're younger than me and PK. And we certainly heard suck it up. And we talked with Steve Cleveland about this, about how things have changed, because he played, he's a little older than PK and I, and he played for a generation of coaches who went through the Depression and World War II, which had its own mental health issues that got addressed in a very different way. So we're kind of evolving here 
for better or worse, going sideways, I don't know how you would say it, but for parents who are of one generation, what are they supposed to be looking for in their kids to figure out if their kids are struggling or not? When I, when, when I talk to parents, I ask them all the time, like, what's your job as a parent? What's your job as a coach, right? And those are two different questions, but your job as a coach is to help your athletes to perform at the highest level. And this generation is different. And, and yes, we can point to social media, and I think there's, I think there's some strong evidence that's talking about our smartphones and, and some of those things. But I think there's also a little bit, and, and this might be just a little bit of a different angle, when, when you look at the AAUs and all the comp teams and the club teams and all these different things, um, we have taken away the art of practice, in my opinion, meaning we play so many basketball games, we play so many baseball games, we play so many soccer games that we've lost that ability for a kid to go out and actually just play in his yard and actually kind of mess around like, and make mistakes where like nobody can see where it's not really a big deal. And so there's, I think what's happening to me is that pressure has been on kids a lot longer because they're, they're always in games. You know, when I was young, David, when I was learning how to throw a curveball for Little League Baseball, I mean, I probably worked on it for two years in practice in the backyard with my dad, messing around with my brother, kind of messing around with the sweat on my forehead to see if I could get it to move more, all that kind of stuff. You cheater! Yeah, before I ever, before I ever actually, like, put it into a game or actually threw a curveball in a game, and now you're talking about eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds on comp teams, and you're learning a curveball on the fly, and you're learning it, and, and you throw one up around somebody's eyes, and they hit a home run, and all of a sudden you feel all this pressure, like you let your teammates down, you let your dad down, you let your family down. And I think we can do a better job as parents of, of just telling our kids that we love to watch them play, regardless of outcome. I mean, it's a really good thing to say to your kid is, like, I love to watch you play. And then as a coach – like being really, really attentive as to why you want them to do things the way that you want them to do it. It's really hard to do as a coach. It used to be old school coaches were like, well, you do what I say because I'm the coach and that's what you do. Well, this generation wants to know why. Why am I doing this drill? Why am I making this effort? And when they know why, they work just as hard as any generation ever has. But that's hard to work for coaches. But I tell coaches all the time, but if you want to win and if you want to be a good coach, you've got to make that extra effort. It's different now. And, and whether you like it or not, it's different. Athletes are different. And I think, I think we're seeing this, right? We're seeing that athletes, as much as they win, they, they still have their frailties and their weaknesses. And I think it's okay for us not to be okay. I think it's okay for us to admit that something's not quite right. Now, what the reaction is to that, I mean, there's always going to be consequences to that. There's always going to be the fanatics out there that, say different things and do different things, but that's why we have to tune out a little bit. We have to focus on what's what's most important now. Not to debate anything you said, but I just think additionally, a separate chapter, there seems to be a baseline of stress and anxiety that people are bringing to... It doesn't matter what. I mean, it could be bringing it to sports. They could be bringing it to music. They could be bringing it to the classroom. They could be bringing it to drama, whatever. There just seems to be a baseline of stress and anxiety. How do you get people to deal with that? Well, I think part of that falls into this. this there, there's a huge problem in our society with perfectionism. 
if, if I had to tell you how many people that I deal with on a day-to-day basis that are dealing with perfectionism, it's, it's a large number. Over 80% of the people that I work with are perfectionists. And what that does to us is it, is it sinks our boat before we actually get into the battle, right? And, and we just have to be careful about that. And I, what I'm trying to switch things to is helping people to realize that it's important to try to be excellent, not perfect. And, and excellence is a whole different stage. And, and here's how I'll explain it to you. I think when I ask people, if I were to ask most of our listeners, who do you think the most successful program in the country is, they'd say Clemson, they'd say Alabama, you know. Well, I, and then I turn to them and I ask them, so has Alabama won the national championship the last five years in a row? No, LSU's won it, Clemson's won it. Whatever team that they select, they usually, I mean, they haven't won it all in a row. But they're, Alabama or Clemson is always knocking on the door. They're always in the conversation or Ohio State's in the conversation. And so that's what excellence is. It's not being perfect. It's just that you're always in the conversation and you're doing your best to be in the conversation. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some. But when we become completely outcome focused, which it's hard not to do, right? But when we're completely outcome focused, we're setting ourselves up for failure because there's always going to be somebody with a nicer car, a bigger house, more prestige, who's a better athlete than you, who runs faster than you, who jumps higher than you, and you're just setting yourself up for failure. You can be really, really, really good at something and, 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 and be really good at what you do and maybe not be the best in any particular category. So to bring this full circle, if you meet someone who's got a lot of stress and anxiety and they're not quite to that moment in the competition that Simone Biles was at, Maybe they're a little out. How do you know whether to tell someone to grit it out, press forward, it'll be okay, do your thing? And how do you know to advise someone, hey, pull back, pull out, hit reset, let somebody else step in? You know, in the case of the Olympics, they got the alternates there. And maybe someone should have told Simone Biles that three or four days ago. Or maybe this just did happen in the moment. But sometimes it's building up. But how do you advise someone a parent or a coach who's in the middle of that process. Yeah, I think, well, and, and like, like you said at the beginning of this conversation, it's, it's tough for me to, to tell you exactly what's going on with Simone because I, I don't know exactly what's going on with her. Right. But I think, I think there were some signs, um, even in, in qualification rounds, that, that there was something going on with her. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the person that performed in the Rio Olympics, right? And my guess is that there's been some, some good efforts, both in the sports psychology world, um, in the clinical psychology world, for her to be able to work through some of these things. And I think that they, they were going on good faith that, like, hey, some of these tools, like breathing techniques, grounding techniques, noting techniques, that these psychological tools that you can put in your tool belt and pull out during competition that, that become very, very helpful um, would, would work and would prevail over time. Clearly, when we, when we got to competition, it wasn't working. And I think some of that is up to the individual player. Like, they have to manage, like, what they can do and what they can't. What I worry about is, is can crippling sport anxiety lead to an accident that, that could cause a lot of damage to someone or, or cause, you know, a serious injury? That's, that's where I start feeling like it crosses the line. Like, if I feel like somebody is, is – 
not able to, to or uses the tools and is unable to see any sort of a difference in their, you know, in their anxiousness or in their nervousness or in whatever it is that they're feeling. And then they're going to go do, you know, a triple flip with two twists and try and land. I mean, that's where I think this is a little bit different line than maybe some different things that we've seen where, you know, she's 10, 11, 12 feet in the air upside down. And if she's not able to execute that move at a good pace, we could see a serious injury. And so my guess is some sort of conversation took place there. They're like, hey, if you don't feel like you can do this, let's, 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 let's save this for another day. There's no reason um, to, to, to risk physical harm. So I think that's where the line becomes is the conversation with the athlete. Do you think you can still compete and do the normal things that you've normally done? And if the answer is no, because of the anxiousness, then then maybe you have to you have to take a different route. Well, I think we'll leave it right here with the Jerry Sloan quote because who was tougher than the ultimate tough guy? Who was grittier than Jerry Sloan? And Jerry Sloan, and you had to hear him speak in person a lot, maybe to fully appreciate this. But you know, he could really project, right? He could make his voice heard to the referee across the court and all that kind of stuff. Um, but just really quietly saying. You never know what's going on in somebody else's life. Well, and especially with pro athletes, especially with pro athletes, nobody really cares what's going on in their lives. I've seen, you know, studies where, you know, a pro basketball player is going through a really, really difficult custody battle for his children, and he loves his children, and he's going through all these things, and people can't figure out why he's not scoring 20 and 10, and he's a bum, and he's not playing the way that he should, right? You just never know what's going on. And typically, and, and rightfully so, a lot of these pro athletes like to keep their private life private, right? They don't like, you know, their wives, their spouses, their kids to be involved in the news or in what's going on in their lives. So they keep that quiet. And, you know, the, the, the guy on the 17th row is yelling at him because he's not scoring 20 and 10 anymore. Well, there's a lot going on in his life. We just never know. We just I, never know. I always thought Jerry was informed by, uh, you know, his own life because I think for a long time he had some level of, um, if not survivor's guilt, and maybe he had that, I don't know, um, but at least kind of analyzing and trying to process why he took the job at his alma mater at Evansville where he'd been a player on an undefeated team and he was going to, you know, in, in a small community that has a lot of pride in its college basketball program, and he was going to lead it back to glory. And, he, you know, he had a lot of memories there. And then he suddenly steps away. He just suddenly leaves and says, nope, I shouldn't do this job. And he's got friends at the university, uh, you know, in the program and all of that. And there's a plane crash, and it's tragic. You can look it up, Evansville Aces and all that. And Jerry, how come I wasn't on that plane? You wouldn't be human if that didn't stay with you for a long time. And so when he says you never know what's going on in somebody's life, you never know how you're circling back to this event that happened years earlier, you know, and trying to process that. And you're right that even without something like that, you know, are you going something in, with your marriage? Are your kids going through something? Uh, your parents, you're working with college athletes. You know, are they losing grandparents? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on we don't know about. So, Yeah, and I think, I mean, Jerry, and I, I, I don't know if it was you who told me this or pointed it out to me while he was coaching. I can't remember who pointed it out to me, but it, if you watched him, he was, he was less 
menacing and less difficult on the players in a loss than he was in a win. Yeah, he was true. much harder on those players uh-huh. in a win yeah. situation than a loss. And I don't know if that was because of Dr. Key Tension, who is, was his old buddy that he played against at Ball State while he was in college and was the sport psychology consultant for the Jazz for many years. I don't know if that was on his advice or just Jerry learning over the years, like, hey, you know, the time the time to prove points and to give lessons is in wins, not losses. But he was he was better at the psychological game than I think a lot of us think. I think we all can do a little bit better in the psychological game. I mean, if nothing else, if you're a parent, like quit turning your car into a coffin, you know, like don't kill your kids on the drive home. Like give yourself 45 minutes for both of you to cool down before you talk about the game. And, and just that advice alone can be really, really beneficial. And I get it. It's emotional. I get it. It's your kid. I get it. You know, it's somehow you're invested in it, but, but, the better we can do to create an environment where, where kids get to enjoy and learn how to work hard. And then, you know, if you get to play college, you get to go to the Olympics or you get to play professional, like that's icing on the cake, but there's nothing wrong with being a really, really good high school player and, um, and learning, learning from sports and learning about life and learning how to love your kids. And it's, it's, it's important. It's important. I can't imagine how Simone's parents are feeling right now, you know, not being able to be in Japan and be able to give her a hug and love her up. I'm sure there's plenty of phone calls going on, but man, sometimes just that, that touch from your parents, that non-tactile touching or a little hug that releases oxytocin into the system can be really powerful. Riley, as always, we appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me on. I can't wait to do the football season, so let's get it going. It won't be long now. We're almost there. Thanks, Riley. Thanks, man. There's Riley Jensen. When we come back, Jazz General Manager Justin Zanuck on the draft. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. The Utah Jazz take the 30th pick in the draft, trade it to Memphis, get three second-round picks, two in the future, but they get the 40th pick last night, and they use Jared Butler. Uh, They use it to get Jared Butler, the uh, Baylor star who helped the Bears win the uh, NCAA championship. He was the most outstanding player of the Final Four, but then he had a health condition heart condition reportedly and had to go through a panel of doctors to get cleared to play in the NBA and that scared people off so a guy who looked like a first round pick maybe late lottery maybe middle first round we'll really never know how it would have worked out because once the health came the health stuff came on the scene NBA teams back off and he falls all the way to pick 40 in the Jazz why did the Jazz go get him what did they see Justin Zanuck with the media late last night can you talk about Derek I am allowed. So this, these are kind of like new rules with the NBA. Um, as you guys know, you guys are basically cap experts now too. So there's certain trades that don't get done until a league year and things. So they've done a new wrinkle in order to um, allow this. So I'm allowed to talk about Jared Butler. 
I'm allowed to say that we have a, an agreement in principle on his rights. There are other terms, and I cannot speak about those other terms. Um, is Jared going to be allowed? Is, do you anticipate him playing in some of the? Um, we're going to get him in here first, partly on, you know, again, when the trade's allowed to happen and all those things that are tied there. Um, and so we'll just follow the league um, rules and when we can get him cleared that way um, for that. So TBD right now, basically, obviously with the Salt Lake City Summer League and then Vegas, he'll, he'll be here. So playing, not playing, we'll take, you know, we'll, we'll take that by ear. Were you able to get him in for a workout? And if so, did Quinn see him? I mean, how many people could you have over there? So Jared is, I'm really, first of all, in, in general, not avoiding the question, then it's more, um, I'm really excited for you guys and the community and the city and the state um, to get to know him the way we believe in him, not only as a player, but as a person. Um, he's a special, special guy. And his presence, um, we've just, he's had a great career and he's been playing at the highest level for a long time. He's gone through draft interviews. We've followed him closely. Um, you know, we obviously have people in the organization that have a lot of Baylor ties and uh, that gives us great comfort um, to kind of have an, a, maybe a better just a really, really good feel about him as a player and as a person. So, um, you know, with the COVID rules, with the compressed season and all those things, um, we've seen him plenty to be able to do it. Obviously, you had some of those health concerns that probably is the reason he was available at 40. What made you confident that those weren't an issue? We're comfortable with Jared as a player, as a person, um, we're excited to add him as, as the Utah Jazz. I don't want to get into any other of those details. It's just that we feel really good about him. So we're excited to have him. What, what specifically stands out about his game that makes you comfortable about his fit here with the Jazz? So, look, and not to hedge on anything, we're, we're talking about a guy who's now about to become a rookie in the NBA with a uh, highly competitive championship competitive organization. So he's got a varied skill set that he's displayed um, at the highest levels of college basketball with a lot of experience, played in really big games, has produced in big games, um, a great leader, a great teammate, and the multi-skilled aspect of his game uh, I think will fit well in, in what we ask our players to do here and what Coach does is to be able to Dribble, pass, shoot, lead, um, guard, and he checks all of those. How much, um, how much did it help you in in wanting to integrate him here? That you know, Jared uh, at the college level um, showed the propensity of being able to play both guard positions, the one and the two, and be positionally versatile. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that a lot, Tony, right? And all of us about in today's NBA, positional versatility, being able to, you know, he's a very, um, he's a very good athlete. He's physically strong, tough, mentally tough. Um, being able to put up with the grind of a season, you know, is new for any rookie, but, you know, he, in my opinion, probably one of the most well-prepared ones for the level of basketball he's had to play and maintain for the last few years. So, you know, he's got as good a start head start as anybody that's coming in without ever playing in the NBA. 
before. Would, Excuse me. Would it be accurate to say that you wanted Jared uh, originally, yep. and then you knew that you could probably trade down and be able to have him? So, again, I can't get into sort of all the other, you know, and I know, like, I'm smiling to myself that I'm about to spout a bunch of, like, 100 cliches of basketball, and, you know, I, I want to tell you that they are true, and they are, but I'll be sitting up here at some other point, too, probably, but he was somebody that we were really excited when we had a chance to get him. Like, it was a no-brainer for us. Are you able to give us any uh, additional details on the details of the trade? With no. I can just say that there are other terms. I had to read. Uh, Stephen Schwartz had to make sure to tell me what I could and couldn't do. We're all rookies here on this part, so <laughs> otherwise we'd be here till like I don't know tomorrow six a.m. <laughs> you know, so okay, going along with that, how different was tonight versus all the other ones that you've been with? I've done them a few times, you know, obviously with lots of great partners, mentors. Uh, we got a great group of guys that the front office and coaching staff, um, all very integrated, you know, doing the work like we've always done. Um, so felt more familiar. The thing that was interesting was that we hadn't had, even though we've, we had a draft last year, this feels much more like a normal process and, you know, more people in the room like it, it's been before uh, having Ryan Smith's presence here, uh, his energy. Um, he's so committed to building a championship level team. And, you know, the things, you know, obviously I've told you guys before, and you guys understand that the draft is only one part of how we build a team for next season. And we have to do that on multiple levels next season, two seasons from now, three seasons from now. All I can tell you um Two things. One, we have a plan. We always have a plan. And we're going to go execute that to the best of our ability. And Ryan's resources and commitment to spending are going to be at levels that we've never done with the Jazz. Um, I can obviously be able to tell you more when team building so linked to the draft, free agency, trades, so that you get the whole picture. I don't even know what's going to happen, obviously, because there's a plan and then some people have to say yes, some people have to say no, and then we can all sit here. So I kind of ignore the like hot takes, you know, <laughs> what draft picks associated with the Jazz or what this means or any other moves that happen to come out in the future. Like, it's just like, take a deep breath and, you know, you can kind of give us your opinion when everything's done. That would be the other hot takes. <laughs> Last year, you talked about wanting to find, with Joe specifically, kind of a skill that pops or one elite skill. Does Jared have that? And if so, what is it? Um, so, you know, look, every draft's different. And, you know, you guys do a great job, frankly. I read all your guys' stuff in terms of your own draft analysis and how everyone's different. Some of them are really strong at the top. Some of them are speculated that it's really deep from 20 to 40. It changes. And then we're all wrong until we really know what happens like three or four years from now. So to answer your question with Jared, I think the thing that really pops for him is just, I'm not sure that we're going to find out, you know, the speed is different in the NBA than college. The strength 
requirements, the physicality, the grind is different, how he develops and then what role, which, again, you know, this is a high-level team, a highly competitive team, a veteran team. So we kind of can give him a runway. But probably the thing that pops is his versatility about, I'm not sure there's a situation that he hasn't seen at some level. And he has the skill set, the physicality, the demeanor to be able to handle those new things really well. So probably less of a ramp up because he's just played more. He's experienced. You know, I mean, he's going to be your favorite. Um, maybe, I'm, you know, Jared will hear this and think I'm putting too high of an expectation, but I talked to my wife tonight. You know, she stayed up and uh, she's with grandma and the kids. And I just said, I think I found Lucy's new favorite player, my youngest, because she'll meet him and she'll, be like, she'll have posters everywhere in her, in her room with him. So. You mentioned earlier your, you know, the Baylor connections that you guys have. How is that? I mean, I can't imagine that there's also not other teams with Baylor connections. Sure. Right? So, like, how does that make you so much more comfortable? I just think that, and I'm not saying, you know, every team does really good work. I think when you have relations, and we have a lot of relationships with schools, and I think we have, I'm very proud of our staff. Um, that does a really good job of like making sure that we have as much intel information. Um, but we we've had an opportunity just to closely follow that. Maybe some from personal ties too, not necessarily to Jared, but to the program that gives you a lot more confidence in the information you're seeing taking in. There's always a little confidence level of the information you hear right? Maybe like your sources, like, Hey, there's a source here that's 95% confident that you're good. And then there's one like eh, 50. So it's different with, with Baylor, the programs, the types of players they produce, the history of their program, how competitive they are. They, along with that gives us a very high confidence level of, you know, more of the personal stuff. Obviously, watch the film, workouts, measurements, those things. You can make a basketball evaluation, but you're projecting humans. And I know I've said that to you guys before, that you're projecting someone into a new environment, how they handle it. The NBA is completely different. You're going from a scholarship and college life to a profession and a job. And some guys are equipped for it. Some guys aren't. Some guys you think are going to be equipped for it. They aren't. Some you know you're not sure, and it works out great. So, I think Jared's very well equipped to handle the next stage of his career, and has the skill set to give himself a chance. What are you uh, looking for out of some of the specifically with Doug, Elijah, guys who are essentially going into a second rookie year? Yeah, that's that's exactly how I would term it, Tony. Um, COVID, the G League shortened season, untimely injuries for especially Elijah and Doak, um, some of our own uh, health stuff where Trent didn't get as many games. Trent Forrest didn't get as many. He got some good minutes up here, but just the guys the year before, like Mie and Jarrell and Jawan, they got 50, 60 games plus time. So, and with how compressed the season was, like, those guys aren't getting to play five on five even with the, when they've been with the team. They might get some three on three, some four on four if we 
even did that because we're playing the games just kept stacking up so this is a real opportunity for them to play um and just really feel a professional level i felt it was i said this i think last year i mean we literally drafted guys and then they show up in four camp i think it was like four days later in a year like this even though it's compressed we're gonna get with jared and elijah and dope and trent probably 40 to 50 touches combining summer league and along with maybe the two or three weeks before we actually start training camp where they're with our health performance guys they're in a group they're playing it's just going to be so beneficial for them. but it's not a oh he did a b and c in summer league or or struggled with this like now we have to just make a decision it's just this is the path of their development that they just didn't have that last year so it's impossible to say and we were a good team, so we weren't playing a lot of young guys. We were there weren't that many opportunities to just like roll guys out and just say, "Okay, figure it out." I just first time we've gone to talk to you since changes, and I'm just kind of curious. Generally, do you have or want to give a, a vision statement for kind of <laughs> you know what the Jazz look like, and, and kind of a I don't know if it's a new era or how different it'll be, but kind of what do you what do you envision for this team? Look, um, it obviously by default, whether I'm sitting up here or not, it's a a new era because of Ryan Smith and his ownership. Um, And I've said it before, but I want to make it clear, like his energy and vision and commitment to the city and state and and this team is going to pay huge dividends down the road. And he's willing and able to make those investments on a yearly basis, which is awesome. Um, my job is to continue to help him acclimate to this and get a chance to see how we operate. You know, he's, he's gotten a year under his belt. He's about to go into his second year and his insight, his instincts have been really helpful for us as we built a a relationship. And I think that'll evolve over time, you know, but I think a lot of the, you know, a lot, some of that is a function of where our team is at right now, not just because it's new ownership. It's we're not a rebuilding team. We're not, you know, a, a playoff competitive team where we have championship aspirations. So, but that's been a lot of years of work where we, you know, gotten some things right and made some mistakes. And but you just keep going forward, and Ryan's going to help us continue to push that forward. So. I'll hold off on a definitive statement other than I'm really excited um, to be working with Ryan and what it, what that means for this community, the, the team, internal staff, coach, like all the collaboration, everything's been great. And uh, it's been a, a different transition, but a really seamless one in terms of the processes and how we make decisions. You said that Jared is going to be one of our favorites. Yeah. When you're doing... I guess the just one-on-one interviews with players mm-hmm. in the pre-draft process. What is it that you're looking for? Me personally, um, and this, <laughs> I wish that there was an algorithm that you could say, "Hey, this guy checks A, B, and C. He will automatically be this." Um, you're still betting on humans, and then sometimes you really, really like people that you meet, um, and you have to kind of remove that from. The basketball. This gives you good comments. Like, okay, if he's good enough, 
then he's got a real chance. So we had made the basketball operate, you know, evaluation. He's more than good enough. We think he has a chance to be really good. And so to answer the question, when we're interviewing and trying to get to know guys, we make it pretty informal. We're not making them do a case study or, you know, read this chart or what do you think? What's this plot look like? We really just want to get to know them. But guys that demonstrate self-awareness of their own weaknesses, of things that make them happy, how well-rounded they are, what they like, um, the self-awareness part's good because there aren't perfect players that come into the NBA and there is a development path. So making sure that every, I guess when I say there aren't perfect players, it means every, every player that comes in has stuff to work on or get better or improve a strength or improve, you know, help work on a weakness. When you have a better idea yourself of what you need to work on and the self-discipline and the work ethic to address that, to be coached, like we have a pretty good player development program, but if guys don't put in the work or aren't working on the right things because they're not self-aware, then that's just a lot. It's not to say it can't be done, but it makes it a lot harder. So you can probably translate that Jared has a lot of those things. There's Jazz GM, Justin Zanuck. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines. Stay with us. Your day has just begun. But for DJ and PK, they're just hitting their stride. It's time for all your headlines from the night in sports. As DJ and PK tell you what's trending. Are you ready? On 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Hashtag Utah Jazz. He's got a varied skill set that he's displayed at the highest levels of college basketball with a lot of experience, played in really big games, has produced in big games, a great leader, a great teammate, and the multi-skilled aspect of his game, I think will fit well in, in what we ask our players to do here and what coach does is to be able to dribble, pass, shoot, lead, guard, and he checks all of those. That's Justin Zanuck, the Jazz general manager. He's talking about Jared uh, Jared Butler, the Baylor product that the Jazz grabbed with the 40th pick. We thought there were going to be trades. Oh, there were trades. Jazz made one, the 30th pick, for three number twos, two of them out there in the future. But they did get the 40th pick last night. They used that second-round pick on Butler, a guy who wouldn't have been available in the second round if he hadn't had health issues. The heart condition, had to go through a panel of three doctors and get approved to play in the NBA. And he did. But that clearly scared teams off big time. He was projected as a late lottery, middle first round guy. And you can see with the draft complete now that that can mean almost anything. Who knows? He might have slipped to 20. Who knows? He might have climbed to six. I mean, I don't know how that would have played out because once he got referred to that panel of doctors, it was hands off. But, obviously, from a financial uh, perspective, second-round picks, less of a gamble than first-round picks. So, the Jazz go for Butler. Uh, You can look at his college numbers, and he's good running the ball screen, the pick-and-roll, and off the dribble. Also, decent on the catch-and-shoot. He can give you production there, so he can play on the ball, he can play off the ball. I think what we're going to see when free agency starts, and you just heard Justin Zanuck talk about this, like, easy on the hot takes. This is one step in team building. There's still trades and free agency to go, and those are really going to shape rosters. And especially 
for the six or eight or ten or twelve teams that think they can win the championship next year, the rookies are less likely to play a big role. So the bigger moves are still to come. How much the Jazz think of Butler and how much of a low they'll think he'll carry, I think they believe they need a guard. That Joe Ingles can't be the third point guard. Joe Ingles needs to be, I don't know, hors d'oeuvre or dessert, whichever way you want to go, but not the main course. I think everyone believes he needed to be more effective in the postseason, and I don't think everyone believes, but I think a lot of people believe that that postseason effectiveness, that he got run down being the lead dog in those last 15 to 20 games. He carried too much of a load when both Donovan Mitchell and Mike Conley were out. Now, they want to re-sign Conley. We'll see if that works out. I think it probably will, but there are no guarantees. Justin really loosely kind of sort of alluded to that late in that interview you just heard. You know, we've got a plan. People have to say yes. People have to say no. Now, that could be Conley. You mean they can't just do it in a vacuum? Nope. Turns out they can't. And, I mean, obviously that applies to Conley as a free agent, but it'll apply to other moves they want to make too. You know, teams they want to make a deal with or whatever. But I think that, uh, you know, the, the thought that they could try to add a veteran point guard at the minimum, and a former jazz man Howell Neto would be in that pool of players, whether it turns out to be him or not, you know, remains to be seen. Again, other, you know, you have a plan, and other people have to say yes and no. But somebody like that, you know, somebody who's been in the league and can play and is going to be available and isn't going to cost any more than absolutely necessary, the NBA minimum. If they don't get someone like that, then I think they believe Butler's carrying the load, that he can step in and play at that level. That seems a little risky to me. I mean, it was uh, Justin just went at length. Hey, you're going from the college game to the pro game. You're going from, uh, you know, college life to work. And the players are bigger, and the players are stronger, and the players are faster, and the players are experienced and have all sorts of tricks. And they will work you Rookie, incoming, fresh meat. So we'll see what the Jazz do with that backup point guard spot. Assuming, assuming they get Conley. If they don't get Conley, then there's a whole other set of problems and issues to deal with. The other story out there, Woj just tweeted this about an hour ago. The Jazz reportedly trading Derek Favors in a future first-round pick to Oklahoma City in exchange for a second pick somewhere, second-round pick somewhere in the future. That will free up some money for the Jazz. This... Man, we, we had multiple people, both hosts and guests coming on, allude that something like this was going to happen. I think there was a lot of anticipation that this is what was going to happen to the 30th pick last night. Instead, it's a future pick. Which deal came first? I can't tell you. I kind of think that uh, this one did. They would have moved the 30th if they had to, but they really didn't want. But there were probably other ways to get in the second round and get Butler. But in any case, it plays out this way. Favors and a future first-round pick to Oklahoma City. And I don't know because it's so new. We'll have to track this down. You know, the, the first round picks can be protected. They can ultimately translate into two second round picks if they don't convey over the course of two or three or four years. And this is so fresh, I can't tell you that. So we'll have to find that out. But for now, it's favors in a future first round pick to Oklahoma City. And we're already getting stuff. Why do the Jazz hate Derek Favors? Oh, the Jazz don't hate Derek Favors. Stop it! I think the Jazz think they're paying too much for a backup role guy who didn't dominate in the playoffs. 
And he's basically getting almost starter money. He's getting high-end bench money. I mean, he's in the same neighborhood as Jordan Clarkson, and Jordan Clarkson is a sixth man. Joe Ingles was half-starter, half-bench guy this year. Really split it right down the middle. But Favors is playing 10 to 15 minutes a game off the bench, and they're not even completely dominating the minutes he's in the game. If he were, maybe you could justify it. I think that's why that happened. I don't think anybody hates him. I think he's actually one of the more likable guys to go through the Jazz locker room in a long time. Mm, I think lots of people think that. This is just cold-hearted basketball analysis. That's a lot of money, and we're not getting enough domination for that amount of money. Period. End story. All right, DJ and PK. Hashtag NBA. With the first pick in the 2021 NBA draft, the Detroit Pistons select Cade Cunningham from Oklahoma State University. Shocking. I am stunned by that news. Cade Cunningham is the overall top pick. Now, in three, four, five years, we will redraft this draft. Could Cade Cunningham have gone number one? There are plenty of drafts where the guy who went number one should not have gone number one. But there are also drafts where people get it right. Troy Weaver, general manager in Detroit, former jazz guy, left here, went to Oklahoma City, and then went to Detroit where he gets to call the shots. So he takes Cunningham, which I think is what a lot of people would have done had they had the top pick. We'll see how it plays out. Will he be better than Jalen Green, who went number two to Houston? Evan Mobley, who went number three to Cleveland. Scotty Barnes, probably the first mild surprise of the night, right? He went number four to Toronto. And Jalen Suggs, who I think some people thought was going to end up four in Toronto, he ends up number five in Orlando. And I think if you're a Jazz fan, what really matters to you here, regardless of how hardcore or casual you are, I think the thing you like about this draft is those five players were this top group. And four of them went to the Eastern Conference. Getting sick and tired of seeing the West be better than the East. And then you look up, and the West has all the top draft picks and is hauling in all the best talent. Really? Luka Doncic had to come to the Western Conference because the Western Conference wasn't good enough? So in this case, four out of five. Jalen Green goes to Houston. But everybody else is headed East there in those top five picks. Draft picks are about the future. There were trades that were about the now, the next year. And the big one is the Washington Wizards. I don't know. I don't know what's with Washington teams making all these deals with L.A. There's one going down in baseball we'll get to, too. But the Wizards send Russell Westbrook back to L.A. L.A. high school phenom, a UCLA Bruin. And after time wandering from Oklahoma City to Houston to Washington, he's coming home. And the hold the Lakers have on that town. I mean, it's not surprising the hold the Jazz have on Utah or the Blazers have on Portland. You don't have an NFL team. You don't have a Major League Baseball team. The NBA team ought to have a hold on the town. But they got the Dodgers and they got the Angels and mm-hmm, the Clippers. And they got two hockey teams and they got two Pac-12 teams. And the Lakers have a tremendous hold on the town. There is, I mean, Russell Westbrook, I'll bet you could sit him down and talk to him for hours about... The games he saw, the plays he saw, the players who were his heroes growing up. It's hard to be a player of Russell Westbrook's calendar, a caliber and not be completely absorbed by the legend that is the Lakers in L.A. So he goes with two future second-round picks to the Lakers. Kyle Kuzma, the former Ute, Montrez Harrell, and Contavis Caldwell-Pope, along with the number 22 pick in last night's draft. They're all headed to Washington. 
The Lakers weren't the deepest team in the world, and they really aren't now. They are going to have to sign a roster full of guys at the minimum. The money is flowing out the door to three stars. There's not much left for everybody else. What kind of team are they going to be able to put around them? How are they going to get shooters to spread the floor? The pressure, I think, is really on to do that because Russell Westbrook is the definition of streaky. I mean, one night he might shoot it okay. But in the long run, we're going to get David Locke on the air, and we're going to ask him about the moves, and he's going to talk about Russell Westbrook's offensive inefficiency. He's going to talk about how many possessions he needs for the points he gets, and he's going to talk about his three-point shooting percentage. And it's not going to be complimentary. Now he's dynamic as all get out, and they want to run, and obviously he will help keep them in transition. And they got three stars at the top of the roster. But man, guys four through eight, and nine, 10, 11, if they have injuries, rolling the dice. This is how they choose to go. Washington did trade that pick to Indiana for, uh, for Aaron Holiday. Pacers drafted Isaiah Jackson. Cleveland Cavaliers acquire former Jazz man Ricky Rubio. A 2022 second round pick and cash in exchange for Torian Prince as those two teams make a deal. Do you think Ricky was awake for this because he's playing in Tokyo? No. I would doubt it. But I didn't do the math on when the trade was announced, plus how many hours from. I mean, it was 15 hours from our time zone. When was it? So if it was 11. When, when was it announced? Was it announced at 10? I don't know when it was exact time. But okay, so 10 o'clock at night so would be at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So, yeah, he would be awake. Okay. I don't know, man. That time zone stuff. It's uh, tomorrow, but back nine hours. It's ahead 50. I, I totally, it, it completely sends my brain spinning. Rubio's good enough to play in the league. He's not in the top half of point guards. He's not likely to be on a playoff team. He has been, certainly here with the Jazz, if he's got enough of the right guys around him. But... He's on another team that's rebuilding and trying to get to the playoffs. DJ and PK. Hashtag NFL. I don't necessarily, I've never looked at it like that. Uh, obviously, at the moment, he's got, a, you know, three years left on his contract, so we certainly don't look at it as a lame duck. Um, you know, we, we may alter that, but even at that stage, it's not going to be a one-year contract. So, never looked at it like that. As you guys know, in this business, it's, everything's year to year, but uh, I've never looked at it as a lame duck situation with any player. That's the Packers GM right there, uh, having to react to Aaron Rodgers' half-hour-long press conference where he said he was a lame duck. Nothing like a lame duck to count down on. Spend this whole season projecting into the offseason. Rodgers is on the move. And uh, the Packers say, well, he's not. He's not a lame duck. Although we could alter the deal. Jets rookie quarterback Zach Wilson is not a lame duck. He is signed. He is in New York. He is the future. Jets reportedly wanted Wilson to defer part of his signing bonus, $6 million of it, to 2022. Wilson wanted the offset language and the deal removed. Both sides didn't get what they wanted. In the end, the deal was done. They worked out some sort of compromise. And this had to happen because the Jets quarterbacking is not good. And he's a rookie and he needs to be in camp. And he needs to be getting going because he's going to be the starter on opening day. And him missing practices, him missing scrimmages, him missing preseason games are bad, worse, and worser. Well, Robert Sala yesterday said, okay, we're done with this. We need the quarterback here. He's the starter. Let's go. He's yeah, a rookie. There are other quarterbacks. It's going to be hard enough 
Yeah, so Yach during the break was filling my head full of stats I didn't really need to know that didn't matter. Well, but Jets, yeah. Jets beat writers. They got to do something, and this is a story. So, tracking stats. Yeah. Right. So what did the Pat, What did the Jets quarterbacks do? And, yeah. and remember, yeah. Zach's not there. So these are the second string, the third string quarterbacks, the other guys who would play if Zach gets hurt or doesn't show up or whatever. So they had 11 passes mm-hmm. that they'd thrown. One of them over 10 yards was intercepted. All the others were under 10 yards. Pretty they much. got a bunch of guys out there dinking and dunking Here, who aren't really NFL quarterbacks. Dump off pass. Can't throw the ball down the field at all. Jake Butt, the once promising tight end whose football career was waylaid by six knee operations, announced his retirement from the NFL on Thursday, saying he could no longer hide the fact he lost his passion for the game he loves. Butt had signed a one-year deal with the Chicago Bears this offseason after four years with the Broncos. That's where the majority of his injuries happened. Michigan guy, right? He played for the Wolverines when they had that home-and-home with the University of Utah. Correct. He was a good player when he was healthy. Three but ACL injuries. Yeah, his health, his health is well in the rearview mirror now. So it's a brutal game, and that's why you got to get the money you can get, and that's why even the NIL money, which isn't going to be as big, unless apparently you're an Alabama quarterback and there's almost a million bucks, might as well get that too because you never know when it's done. I mean, he was – if you were at those Michigan-Utah games, I mean, he was obviously a very good college player and headed to the NFL, but – Never really takes off in the NFL as injuries take their toll. DJ and PK. Hashtag college football. ESPN responded to Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby's letter that accused the network of trying to destabilize the league, writing in a letter of its own that ESPN has engaged in no wrongful conduct and that there is nothing to cease and desist. A lawyer had fun writing that. Somebody had fun. Okay, as we all say, the most undefeated person in sports is Billable Hours. (laughs) Billable Hours for the win! Berg Magnus, ESPN president, restated ESPN's position. The claims has no merit. Apart from a single vague allegation that ESPN is actively engaged in discussions with at least one other unnamed conference, which ESPN disputes, your letter consists entirely of unsubstantiated speculations and legal conclusions. What can they prove? And everybody talks in this line of work. Did someone at the American call the ESPN and say, hey, what's our league work worth if we get Oklahoma State and Texas Tech in here? How much more, how much more money do we get? And man, if the American isn't thinking about grabbing Big 12 teams, if I were the Big 12, if I thought there was a chance the league would stay together, I wouldn't be hopping to the American. That's, that's another pay cut. It's a pay cut to go from the Big 12 with Oklahoma and Texas to whatever the Big 12 is without Oklahoma and Texas. But it would be another pay cut to go to the American. But the Americans got to try and steal teams because the Big 12 is trying to steal from them. This is what happened with the ACC and the Big East. Eat or be eaten. Big 12 ought to be talking to Houston and to Cincinnati and to Memphis. What's at stake here for the Big 12 is how long are Oklahoma and Texas in the league? How many seasons do they play? Because every year they play, the Big 12 schools put off that big pay cut. Keeping it in one more year, is that going to be worth $10 million per school? Is it going to be worth $15 million per school? Is it going to be worth $20 million per school? I mean, it's a dead-end street, and it's going to end poorly, but the longer it takes for it to end, the more money Iowa State, Kansas State, and everybody else make. So they're trying to hold this together for as long as possible. Obviously, they're going to be together this season. They're going to be together the year after that. What about two years after that? 
Hard to believe they're going to hold it all the way, hold it together all the way till 2025. 20, Something will probably be negotiated. And this threat of legal action is the backdrop for that. DJ and PK. Hashtag Major League Baseball. And the pitch to Jake. Get in the air. Deep down the right field line. Towards the pole. That one hits the pole. A two-run homer. And it's three to nothing in the eighth. Swing and a drive. Deep right field. Wow. It's going to go. And this game <laughs> is over. It is a walk-off grand slam for Brad Miller. And the Phillies have won it. A stunning end here at Citizens Bank Park as Brad Miller reaches home plate. The Phillies celebrate a walk-off grand slam. Nationals and Phillies actually played a doubleheader, and certainly the walk-off slam, uh, that's intriguing. It's exciting in the moment. These two teams aren't really going anywhere. The Phillies are 51-51, and right at 500. And the Nationals are eight games under. And the big headline for the Nationals... Trading Max Scherzer. The thing I thought was odd was they let Scherzer pitch yesterday. Usually you don't want someone to play, in this case pitch, because you don't want him to get hurt and screw up the trade that is coming. But he pitched six innings, and they won in the seven innings uh, in the doubleheader. They won that game 3-1, to one, and then the walk-off grand slam was eight innings in the other game of the doubleheader. But they let Scherzer pitch. I thought that was weird. Scherzer and Trey Turner then traded to the Dodgers. And Scherzer was gone. He was going to be traded. The only question is where. And there were reports yesterday it was going to be the Padres. And then all of a sudden there wasn't. And and Larry the Laker, with all his connections, hobnobbing with all these L.A. people, he was, uh, he was direct messaging me that his sources, and I know a lot of fans do that, and, and Larry the Laker is a fan. But... Big it's, fan. He, and he is. He's a huge fan. Big time. He is He is all in. He's super excited. But he is more connected than... But it, this happens in Utah a lot. It doesn't happen in other places as much, although you know it has to. In Utah, people know stuff, especially when you're talking about the colleges because you played high school with somebody or you got brothers, sisters, extended family, brothers-in-law, and somebody... Excuse me. Somebody tells them something, and all of a sudden it's out. People have their connections. They're tightly wired here. And a place like L.A. is not nearly as tightly wired. But for whatever reason, Larry's bumped into people in his circle, and, and it's really weird that somehow he knows somebody in the Padres organization. Well, they got the okay, and the Dodgers didn't. And he is a huge Dodger fan who constantly dumps on the Dodgers. And I see that message from him and think, eh, well, there you go. I wonder why the Dodgers don't want Scherzer. I guess they finally got him got embarrassed by uh, all their riches. Where some of the Padres guys have gotten hurt so they can kind of justify, well, we don't really have an embarrassment of riches. We've had injuries. And then all of a sudden, a couple, hour, a couple hours later, I get a, a college roommate who lives back in Maryland and is a huge Nationals fan. And he's texting everybody in our group chat from college about the Nationals. I know they were moving Scherzer, but I can't believe they let Turner get to the Dodgers too. And I'm like, the Dodgers, I'm watching the draft. The Dodgers got to the front of the line. What? So they're loaded. Now they're still in second place, and they got to go win, but Scherzer and Turner ought to boost them. Another bat, another arm. Man, we talk about the NBA, and the NBA seems to be trending away from the super teams, and everybody is loaded, but I think it's just cyclical, and it'll come back. 
And right now, baseball's in the cycle where they're trending back towards the super team. I mean, the Dodgers and Padres have made so many moves and loaded up their roster. And there's a chance that either one of them will win the division and one of them will be out in the wild card. But man, these guys, are they are going for it. And I had some of you tweeting at me about that yesterday. I, they're going for it, but it's still going to end in a trail of tears. Well, now that I've tried it both ways, I like it better when they try and lose than when they don't try and lose. Because when, they, when you're sitting there in spring training looking at the roster going, these guys aren't going to win more than 70 games. Red hot, out of their mind, career years, they win 75, they're not getting to 500. That season's no fun. I literally completely stopped paying attention. I don't look at box scores. I don't watch highlights on the MLB network. I don't. I don't stay up late to watch the end of games. And then Yacht comes in here and says something to me. And he's like, my gosh, you've completely tuned it out. Yeah. But now that they're trying, even if it doesn't work, it's interesting. I'm up for it. Red Sox are trying. They were in first place. They went and got Kyle Schwarber from the Nationals for a minor league pitcher. The Nationals are just totally going back to square one here. Yankees got Anthony Rizzo from the Cubs. The Cubs have not completely dismantled their 2016 championship core, but they still could. Trade deadline's, I think, 2 o'clock today. I think it, is it, This afternoon. Yeah. I think it, is it 4 Eastern and 2 Mountain, or is it 2 Eastern and Noon Mountain? I want to say you're correct. Well, I just gave you two options. I, I believe it's the first one. It's, it's the first one. It's 4 Eastern, Eastern and 2 Mountain. I believe so, yeah. By the way, the Red Sox and Yankees yesterday, both getting their doors blown off. There were some games that were just out of control. The Red Sox lost uh, 13 to one to the Toronto Blue Jays, and the Yankees lost 14 to nothing to the Rays. Man, when it goes, just let it go. Oh yeah, don't blow your bullpen. Save it for the next day. Just let what? It, just yeah. let it go. Because so there was another blowout. The Brewers beat the Pirates 12 to nothing. I was gonna say yeah. So but it's four four Eastern, two o'clock Mountain time. It is okay. Yeah. The Yankees and the Red Sox. Had not both lost games by 12 runs. Thank you, Elias Sports Bureau and ESPN Stats and Info. Had not lost games by 12 runs on the same day since 1915. It's been more than 100 years. Babe Ruth was playing for the Red Sox. The Bees were up 8 to nothing, And then they lost 13-11. to I want to say that's life in the PCL, but it's not the PCL anymore. And I don't understand why they had to it's destroy the AAA that brand. West Division. I don't understand why they had to destroy that brand. The go, Pacific Coast League was fine. Go back to the PCL. And I get that there were teams in Texas in the PCL, and it had changed. But it had been the PCL my whole life. I don't, I don't get what they're doing. Game two, heartless accountants got hold of minor league baseball. That's what they're doing. Game two versus Isotopes tonight, 635. Coverage starts at 615 with the on-deck circle pregame show with Steve Klauke. Hashtag RSL. RSL hits Houston tomorrow to face the Dynamo, 630 on KMYU, the KSL TV app, or ESPN+. Plus. Houston is in ninth place, three points behind RSL. RSL's playing three games on the road in eight days. The most winnable game is the first game. And, and on the surface, they're, they're all winnable. None of these teams, it's not like they're playing the Sounders or somebody who's you know miles, miles better than everybody else. Houston has already come in. Played to a 1-1 tie, got the draw, got a point, and got out of Rio Tinto Stadium. RSL needs to return the favor. Obviously, the Dynamo are trying to win, and the Dynamo are trying to move even with RSL in the playoff race. When this three games in eight days is done, they are halfway through the season, 17 down, 17 to go. It's hard to figure out who's going to play and how they're going to set up the lineups. RSL has shown a lot of depth. They've shown that in the last couple games. It's three games in eight days. My guess is Rubio Rubin is going to play more minutes than Bobby Wood because they are being very careful with Wood's minutes. 
He's gotten a couple starts now, but they still aren't letting him play much past the hour mark, if that. So he's he's a 60-minute guy here. They haven't even let him go 75, let alone 90. So my guess is that Wood would start the weekend, or excuse me, that Wood would start the midweek game and Rubio Rubin would start the weekend games, which is a nice sentimental piece of, well, then Rubio Rubin gets to start in Portland, his hometown. He grew up in Beaverton, all that stuff. And it keeps Bobby Wood off the start on AstroTurf. The first two games are on natural grass. So I think that's probably how it plays out. It's just as crazy on Houston's side. They've had five players away at the Gold Cup. So how what kind of what kind of shape those guys are in to play, what kind of minutes. They're getting ready for three games in eight days. So that portion of it, how both teams set up, ought to be pretty wild. What is trending is brought to you by Shamrock Plumbing. There's no job too big or too small. Get the personal touch with Shamrock Plumbing. Call them at 801-295-1690. That's Shamrock Plumbing. Coming up, Ron Barker, former head of compliance for the Pac-12 and a BYU basketball assistant coach. Yuck, you've been tracking this guy for a while. He was a BYU assistant coach in 89 to 91. You were in elementary school and it started your blog. Yeah, exactly. No, I so I actually had a good friend of mine reach out and say, hey, Ron, the guy you might be interested in having on, he spent 20 years uh, in enforcement with the NCAA and with the Pac-12. He's been through all kinds of investigations. He's now writing books based on some of his experiences. That we I want to know how much cheating was going on. Will he get into details with us? Oh, he'll let you know. Yeah. He, he did an interview with my buddy who passed w- this information to me. I want to know about cheating cheaters and lying liars. He'll be able to help you out on that front. And I don't really care about the parking tickets and the misdemeanors. I am fully aware that everybody has them. I don't know who your favorite team is or who your favorite coach is, but he did it. And if it's a if it's another sport and the female and it's a female coach, then she did it. I get all that. I want to know about the felonies. I want to know about the big stuff. That's all I really care about. Care about the juicier the better. Let's dish the dirt. I'm ready. So 8:30. Circle that for Ron Barker. Now you've reached out to a lot of NBA writers, all of whom were up late last night doing press conferences. And both of us. Don't want to guarantee. Yeah. I got to say, I got to come clean. The draft was done, and we were texting back and forth, you know, when is Justin Zanuck going to go? And I fell asleep and woke up to a text from you. I'm glad you texted me. It woke me up. Oh, it I was, was out. M- it was midnight it was too late. when yeah. you finally spoke. So, Yeah. All right. So the NBA writers are all waking up late. We'll see who we get and when we get them. DJ and PK, more on the draft coming up next. The Jazz making their moves. Stay with us. The Big Show show. with Jake Scott and Gordon Monson. Former BYU Athletic Director Rondo Felberg. I'm sure you found me a decade ago saying this was going to continue to evolve until we get to a point of natural stability. I still believe that a football-centric organization that has four 16-team leagues that include conference-based rivalries that lead you up to a conference playoff and then to a national playoff. And that's what the SEC's just done. I fault the Big 12 for not having done anything when they had the chance nearly a decade ago to actually be ahead of the curve on this, and they didn't. Catch the Big Show weekdays from 2 to 7, presented by Big O' Tires, the team you trust on 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. That update from the Tokyo Games was brought to you by Syringa Networks. Working from home or with a hybrid workforce, get a powerful IT partner with Syringa Networks. Call them at 385-420-7881 or visit syringanetworks.net. 
One update, that women's soccer quarterfinal that John Stashauer was talking about has now gone to penalties. Nice save. And the U.S. just saved a penalty. The Netherlands trying to tuck it in that bottom left corner. No can do. Good save. So we'll update you on that. Quarterfinal. Whoever loses this isn't meddling. They're out. Getting a lot of reaction. Not so much on the Jazz and the draft this morning. We will get to that in a few moments. But more on the Derek Favors trade. And actually, that makes sense when you think about it. Because Butler's brand new. There's no emotional connection. U.S. converts. There's no emotional connection, and with Derek, there clearly is. Jackson Emery, the former uh, BYU star, waking up to word of this. D. Faves has always been a favorite of mine. Hopefully this allows the Jazz the flexibility to cover some gaps in their roster. Jackson played, so he gets the business angle of it. The people who didn't play... uh, much more emotional. Jen, thank you for being a jazz man at D-Face 14. You'll be missed and will always hold a special place in jazz fan, in this jazz fan's heart. There's a lot of that sentiment out there this morning. Hey, D-Faves, no matter what, you're an all-time jazz player. We love you tons, man. That said, I hope you stay forever. But he's not. He's traded to Oklahoma City. Along with a future first-round pick, we don't know about protections on the pick yet, and we assume there are plenty of them. Those details will probably come out later today. Headband Royce, this one hurts. You'll forever be a Utah Jazz legend. And that is an old picture of Derek Favors. That is a young, skinny Derek Favors The Headband Royce chose right there. I think he dug back into the archives. That looks like 2012 Derek Favors. I'm going to guess. Here's the deal. Derek Favors was making a lot of money. He was basically making starter money. Now, he wasn't starting. But do you play starter minutes? I mean, you could be the sixth man of the year, and you're coming off the bench, and you're not a starter, but if you're playing 26, 28, 32 minutes a game, you're playing starter minutes. And number one, Derek didn't play starter minutes, because when they brought him back, he no longer played aside Rudy Gobert. So he was playing backup minutes. But he was making $9.2 million. He's making a million and a half less than Joe Ingles, who started half the games, came off the bench for half games, but always played starter minutes regardless of whether he was out there at the start of the game or he came on midway through the first quarter. Royce O'Neal, $8.5 million bucks starting. Jordan Clarkson, $11.5 million. Derek Favors, nine point two. He's right in the middle of Clarkson, Ingles, and O'Neal. And it goes to nine point seven this year for this coming season. And he was a backup. And did you feel like when Rudy Gobert was out, the Jazz were kicking butt and taking names, dominating the opposition, 
Like, oh boy, here come the favors minutes and they're cleaning up. Because when you're making $9.2 million, 9.7 next year, A, you probably need to be playing starter minutes even if you're coming off the bench, and he wasn't. B, if you're not playing the minutes, you at least have to be getting excellent production. And if not, it's cold, cold world out there, and they're going to move you. Now, will he play those minutes in Oklahoma City? How will all that shake out? I don't know what their roster is going to look like when they get to the season. But for Oklahoma City, it seems to be all about collecting draft picks. They collected some in the first round last night because, you know, 27 isn't enough. More draft picks, more leverage. U.S. saved another PK. Is that a replay, or did the U.S. just save another PK? another one. So they make this, they win. So U.S. is up 3-2 in the bottom of the fourth when a soccer PK turns into a baseball game. It's the bottom of the fourth inning. It works. Let's put them up 4-2, and it'll all be over, and they'd send the Netherlands home. So I get the emotion, and Favors always came across as a genuinely nice guy because he's a genuinely nice guy. I think he's one of the nicest guys. You hear it from his teammates. You hear it from beat writers. You hear it in the community from people who bump into him and cross paths. So I get it sucks, but I also think it's wildly predictable based on the production they're getting. He's 30 years old. There is no upside. The future is now for the team, and they're paying him a lot of money, and he's playing 12 minutes, and they're not crushing it in the 12 minutes he's playing. So I think it's pretty predictable. And for those of you who are upset that they gave away a first-round draft pick there, well... Let's see if it turns out to be a first-round draft pick. Sometimes these things are protected and end up converting to second-round picks. And with this just going down, I don't know yet. But I suspect we will hear sooner sooner rather than later. And the U.S. has just defeated the Netherlands on penalty kicks 4-2. to I don't know who just converted the game winner, but the U.S. is on to the semifinals. Who else other than Megan Rapinoe? Oh, it was? Yeah. It was Rapinoe, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. Is it Rapinoe, Rapinoe? Rapinoe. Rapinoe, yeah. My bad. So... U.S. converts all four there, saves to the Netherlands, and that's it. That's a rematch of the World Cup final. The U.S. won that, and the U.S. has won this on penalties, and they're into the semis. All right, DJ and PK, when we come back, a little college football. For those of you who are drowning in basketball, we got the draft stuff coming up at the uh, top of the hour. But for those of you who need a little college football in your life, uh, we had some for you yesterday on the big show, but I think we need to tweak one thing. Because I think that one thing that people are craving going forward simply isn't going to happen. If it does happen, it's very temporary. And I think as soon as you say it's temporary, then it's not true. So we'll get to that next. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. I fault the Big 12 themselves for not having done anything when they had the chance nearly a decade ago to to create some stability and to actually be ahead of the curve on this, and they didn't. Uh, but there will ultimately, you look at the number of schools that play big-time college football, and it breaks out pretty nicely into four 16-team leagues, and the playoffs then work, and the system then stabilizes itself. DJPK brought to you in part by Homie, finally the way real estate should be. Full-service local agents, and you'll save thousands. Homie, a better way to sell. Former BYU Athletic Director Rondo Felberg on the big show yesterday. I get where he's going with that, and I get also that everybody has got built-in bias for one reason or another, and BYU... 
has been shunned, passed over by the Big 12 twice. So if there's a little bitterness there for BYU fans and BYU administrators and a former BYU administrator like Rondo Felberg, I get it 100%. They had a chance to pick you in the 90s, and then there's a story about Ann Richards and the governor of Texas making sure Baylor got in and suddenly BYU is out. And obviously the Big Ten a few years ago did that whole flirtation and looked over all the schools and BYU and Houston and Memphis and Cincinnati and everybody jumped through all the hoops and did everything they're supposed to do and then the Big Ten added nobody. Dog and pony show to get more money out of the TV deal. And it worked for a while until it didn't. I just think that what Rondo describes as stability isn't going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I think for multiple reasons. Not two, Yach. Not two. Let the record show three. Now, the problem with me saying three is now, for the rest of the segment, I have to remember all three and actually deliver three, or you're all going to laugh at me. Led by Yach, who will laugh first, he will laugh loudest, and he will laugh longest. First thing, I think we're, we're, we're moving past the 14 playoff. I think the 12 team playoff is coming. Uh, there's all this talk about, well, it's not going to come so fast now that we know what the SEC did. Well, yeah, it is because the SEC is going to get two out of the four bids and a league is still going to get left out. Probably the Pac-12, but the Big Ten has been left out. And I assume one day the ACC will. At some point, the rest of the ACC might get good enough to beat Clemson or Clemson might schedule a non-conference game they can't win and things get screwed up and they'll miss. So I think 12 is coming. Now people say, well, not as fast. Well, I was never convinced it was coming that fast anyway because there's a bunch of TV contracts and bowl contracts to unwind. So I think it's coming. Now I, I think it should come with a limit on how many teams a conference can get into the playoff. I think that's what the SEC is going to have to deal with in the long run. There was going to be no limit. But I think now that everyone knows, oh, they were setting this up while they were stealing Oklahoma and Texas, I think the other conference commissioners – Pac-12, Big Ten, ACC, who weren't in the room, who weren't on the executive committee that worked it out. Ironically, it was the SEC and the Big 12. (laughs) That's hilarious (laughs) in retrospect. And the other three are like, whoa, we weren't even in a room. You were backstabbing those guys. Hold on. Let us look at this deal. My guess is there'll be a limit of three teams per conference. Maybe it'll be four, but I think it'll be three teams per conference in the playoff. So that's one. Now I've only got two to remember, Yach. I got two to remember. Two, the SEC always had a pile of money that was bigger than everybody else's pile of money. And as that pile of money got bigger and they won more, they were pulling more and more recruits out of Texas. I think the motivation for Texas is absolutely, let's get a $90 million TV deal instead of 45 or 50 or whatever we're going to be at. In the short run, they were at 38, Barry Trammell told us, and they're going to go to 60. In the long run, I think they were going to get to 50 or 55, maybe even 60, but now they're going to get to 85, 90, or 95 million. So yes, money is part of what pulled this apart, and I don't think adding BYU in Houston or BYU in Memphis or Houston in Memphis, I don't think there was any combination back in the day, BYU instead of Baylor, that was going to help the Big 12 close that money gap. 
I get Rondo's point about stability in four 16-team leagues, but the money gap is still massive. But I think the other thing that happened, and you can see this in every recruiting class over time, the SEC was getting more and more of the elite Texas athletes. And Texas wasn't. And Texas knows it. And it bugs Texas. And if they're going to get those athletes and win, they need to be in the SEC. Now, people have been tweeting out and writing in stories, well, Texas has only won three Big 12 championships in the last 24 years. How are they going to win in the SEC? Well, short answer, they're not. But in a 12-team playoff, you don't have to win the league. If you're one of the top three, you get to the playoff. And I get Texas is getting dominated by Oklahoma. And in the 24 years, A&M was still in the league for part of that, and they did their share. They won titles. And Baylor and TCU and Kansas State all had their moments as well. And Texas didn't measure up well to that. And Texas may not measure up that well in the SEC. But access to the playoffs, the money, and their ability to win hinges on recruiting. Kyle Winningham has told us a million times. So I think that's another element of stability that they just weren't going to have any control over. And they needed to go to the SEC. And then the third thing is, whatever level of stability you get, when the switch finally happens, and it will, from broadcast TV and cable TV to streaming, it's going to shake everything up again. Because the teams that are worth a lot in the cable universe, in the satellite universe, aren't necessarily worth that much in the streaming universe. There's an argument to be made that Colorado right now is more valuable to Utah than the Pac-12. Or Colorado is more valuable to the Pac-12 than Utah is. Because it's just all about households in your market. And Colorado delivers more, so the league makes more because they get a, a number, a dollar figure, for every household that hasn't cut the cord yet, that has either cable or satellite. And there's more of those households in Colorado than are in Utah, so Colorado is more valuable than Utah. But when you get to streaming, it's going to come to passion. You aren't just going to default by geography. And the fact is, along the I-25 corridor, the passion is around the Broncos. And the Broncos and the Broncos. It's not around the Buffs. And here, where we don't have NFL, there's passion around the Utes. And from the Big 12 perspective, which soon may cease to exist, there is passion around BYU that right now you can't cash in on. Because... There's, as people love to say, there's five or 10,000 BYU fans in any place you go. Right. But in the cable satellite universe, you can't cash in on them. Those 5,000 fans who live in Nashville or Knoxville, the 5,000 fans who live in Orlando or Virginia Beach, you don't cash in on them. It just matters who's in a 50-mile circle around your university. But when we get to streaming... Those 5,000 fans there, the 15,000 fans in Arizona, the 25,000 fans in L.A., the 10,000 in San Diego, the 5,000 in Fresno, the five or 10,000 up in Boise, they're all going to buy streaming. BYU is going to be much more valuable. But Rutgers? Oh, yeah, you draw a 50-mile circle around their campus. you in New York City. Awesome. You know those people in New York City are going to pay to stream Rutgers football? No, they're not. They're valuable to the Big Ten right now, but the day is coming where they aren't worth diddly-poo there. I wanted to say something else, but I was just too disciplined. That's what I was. I was too disciplined. 
So to say that there's going to be stability, I think there's just always going to be change. And the history of college football tells you that. Look at all the leagues BYU and Utah and Utah State have played in. How many of you gone back and checked out the WAC? How many of you have gone back and checked out the Skyline Conference? How many of you have gone back and checked out the Big Seven? How many of you are in your car going, what's a Skyline Conference in a Big Seven? What is this you speak of? Should have listened to the Locked On Cougars podcast. We talked about this this summer. Did a big retrospective. It's where I get all my show ideas. I'm just joking. <laughs> but I did talk. You know that. So you know. <laughs> so there's this history of it. it's always shifting. There was a time when BYU and Utah weren't in the same league with Colorado A&M. And then they were. And a lot of you are saying, what's a Colorado A&M? Well, Colorado State. What's up, Colorado State? Right. And then they weren't together. And then they were. And now they're not again. So it's always shifting. You do your 10, your 15, your 20 years. Things change. I mean, at one point it's like, wait, we can get on airplanes and fly to games. Huh. We could change our league. It's new technology. We're all just shaking our head. That's not new technology. Streaming is new technology. Yeah, there's generations that are going to come up that say streaming is old technology. So as the technology changes, the leagues will change. You'll never get the stability. This is going to keep happening. And I did have someone in college sports, by the way, tell me, hey, forget all these goofy plans about six-pack 12 teams or eight or four or whatever joining the ACC or the Big Ten. They're not that crazy. Academics matter too much, and that kind of change isn't coming to the Big Ten and the Pac-12. Now, there are people who would disagree with this person, and this person has a job in the college sports world and does not need to be blurting these opinions out with their name attached to them. It will do them no good whatsoever. But they have heard all of this, and they're like, oh, calm down, people. It's not happening. The academics matter too much. I don't know if they're right or wrong, but I pass that opinion along as one opinion shared passionately with me. Calm down. The academics matter too much to the Pac-12 and to the Big Ten. What about the ACC? Don't know about the ACC. But for what it's worth, there you go. All right, DJ and PK. Coming up, Ron Barker, former head of compliance for the Pac-12 and BYU basketball assistant coach, 830. Yak assures me he's going to be dealing the dirt. That's good, because we want the dirt. I don't know how many details, but he will deal dirt. Now, I understand there's some things still have to be. I get that. But I want to I know more when I leave than I know going in. That's what I want. All right. Coming up next, the draft. The Jazz make a trade, make a pick, and make another trade. We'll get to all of that next. DJ and PK. It's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. DJ and PK brought to you by Live Nation. Listen to the big show every day, July 28th through August 1st, for your chance to win tickets to see your favorite artist at Yasana Amphitheater. We'll be giving away one pair of tickets every day to Kiss 311, Lady A, and Alanis Morissette. And here's the best part. You get to pick which concert you want to attend. Get your tickets at LiveNation.com. Brought to you by Live Nation. So the NBA draft is in the books. The Jazz trade the 30th pick, as many people expected. They traded for the 40th pick. Not so many people expected that. They ended up picking up Jared Butler. Can play either guard spot, 6'4 guy, three years of college ball. Originally, he was going to go to Alabama. And ended up bailing out before he ever got started and headed over to Baylor. Most outstanding player, NCAA Final Four. Big part of their championship run, obviously. Can play either guard spot. Has, uh, has ability to uh, run the pick and roll. 
Pass the ball, maybe a little, little loose with the ball. Maybe turns it over a little too much. Can catch and shoot also. So he's got some possibilities. But he will be a rookie, and the Jazz will need him in the playoffs. It's all about the playoffs now for the Jazz. They've established themselves as the best team in the regular season. So now how far can you go in the playoffs, regardless of whether you're a one seed or a two seed or whatever? He did have health issues, and that is why he was available at the 40th pick. Got referred to a panel of three doctors, reportedly about a heart condition, and the league picks a doctor, and the Players Association picks a doctor, and the doctors pick a third doctor, and they go over everything and decide if you can play. And they decided he could. But the damage had already been done to his draft stock. Uh, the projections I saw had him initially that he was going to be middle of the first round. And, of course, that's way early stuff. So you've got to do the workouts and you got to do all the interviews and guys can slide to 20 or they can climb to number seven or whatever. I don't know where he would have gone in there. We'll never know because once the health stuff was on the board, it's NBA teams are just backing away left and right. And that's why he slides to 40 and why the Jazz get him. And Justin Zanuck, and we played it earlier this morning, he met with the media last night at midnight, so you may not have seen all the quotes and the writers haven't had time to get them out and all that. But he was asked specifically, is this the guy you wanted at 30, but you knew you can get him at 40, and is that why you traded back? Justin didn't want to go there. I think we could guess, and assuming the answer is yes, but nothing he was willing to confirm. But in any case, that's who they get at 40. They also got two other second-round picks. Uh, they'll be in other years, so they're future second-rounders out there. How much do they think Butler can play year one, and how much is he viewed as a project? And I think we'll know that if Conley resigns, do they bring in a veteran point guard or not? Because I don't think anybody wants to see Joe play that many minutes as a primary ball handler. And he might not have to because they might be healthier this year. But I think if they re-sign Conley, and if they're going to end up playing a full 82 games, Conley's got to be looked at as a 50 or 60 game guy. Either the hamstrings will be a problem again and he'll miss games, or he'll be sitting out back-to-backs and other select games to protect his hamstrings. So either way, I don't know what the number would be, but I, I can't see why you pick a number bigger than 60. And if some of you want to say, oh, it'll be 50, hmm, okay, maybe. So I think they're going to need another point guard. And do they want to count on Jared Butler to be that, or do they want to go out and find a veteran at the minimum? We're going to find out what they really think of Butler when we see that. And they also got asked, is Butler going to be in the summer league? The Salt Lake version, before they go to Vegas, the Salt Lake version is August 3rd, 4th, and 6th. And Justin didn't want to commit to him being in uniform. It seemed like the answer was definitely maybe. He'll be there and be with the team, but will he be playing? Will they still be working some stuff out? Remains to be seen. There's some kind of question marks looming there. So that's the draft. Seems like good value. A guy who probably should have been pick 15, give or take a few spots. And you get him at 40. Now, the rest of the league was still shying away from him. Picks 35, 36, 37, 38. So there's got to be some element of risk there. And if he doesn't play in the summer leagues, then the eyebrows are raised because why wouldn't you want your rookie playing in the summer league? You know, how healthy is he? None of us really get to know that. But as PK likes to say, it will all be obvious pretty quickly. Can he play August 3rd, 4th, and 6th? What's going on? Can he play in Vegas after that? 
The other thing the Jazz have done, the news breaking overnight, and many of you aren't happy about it, the Jazz are trading Derek Favors. I don't think this is a surprise. Maybe Oklahoma City is a surprise. There were all kinds of rumors out there about a possible trade to Sacramento. But for most of you, it doesn't really matter where he's going. You like Derek Favors, and you're sorry he's gone. And I covered this a little earlier in the show, but he makes a lot of money. He makes the kind of money that you get if you're playing 27, 30, 32 minutes a night. Starter-type minutes. Whether you start or whether you come off the bench. He's making money very similar to... I mean, he's not making the Mitchell Gobert. He's not even really making the bogey money. You know, bogey's uh, what, almost $18 million last year and will be almost $19 million this coming year. He's not in that neighborhood. He's not one of your big three. But he's making the same kind of money that Clarkson, Ingles, and O'Neal are making. Royce O'Neal is going to make 8.7 next year. Jordan Clarkson's money dro- jumps to 12.4. Joe goes up to 14. Derek will be at 9.7. So you got four guys between 9 and $14 million. But Royce starts full-time. Joe started, really split it last year, started half the time, came off the bench half the time. And Jordan Clarkson didn't start. He came off the bench. But all those guys are playing 25-plus minutes depending on the night and the game and the way it's going. And some nights they're playing 30 or 35. So they're, they're guys who are playing big minutes carrying a big chunk of the load. Derek wasn't playing that many minutes. And the bench wasn't even necessarily dominating the minutes. Now, Josh tweets at us, David, the second unit, the year he was gone, was downright pathetic. He made a difference. Uh, I agree, the second unit was terrible. And he did... He did make it better. Uh, I'll absolutely give you that. Now, I think acquiring Jordan Clarkson mid-year really made it better. Uh, but the other problem with Derek is he's got physical issues. He's not healthy. He's not as healthy as he was three or four years ago. And at that point, he's not as healthy as he was six or eight years ago. It's just been trending poorly. He's been sitting on the bench um, with a heat pack on his back trying to stay loose. And he's said point blank in interviews when he's asked about it, well, some nights it just feels better than others. I just I feel looser and I'm more able to move. And some nights he looks explosive. And some nights he's playing old man basketball down at the gym and he's underneath the rim flipping shots up. Other nights he's on top of the rim throwing it down. And that's the Derek Favors you know and love. And I get that. But he's 30 now. And he's going to turn 31 coming up here. And that is going to get worse, not better. He's not going to get healthier. The, the physical issues have been a problem, and I don't think they're getting better. So a combination of the money, a combination of they need more production, and a combination of his physical issues, and I think it was a pretty clear-cut decision for them. They need to use that money on somebody else because they have to be better so they don't get knocked out in the second round of the playoffs. They need to find people who are going to be difference makers in the postseason. And with Rudy playing big minutes in the best of times, Favors is playing 12 to 15 minutes. And as we've seen with small ball, maybe the Jazz need a different kind of player to back up Rudy. And Favors isn't that guy. So I think it was really a pretty clear-cut decision for the front office. And if you say you like him, I get it. And if you say he's one of your favorite players, I get it. But there's no room for emotion and warm, fluffy feelings. It's just cold, hard math. How much money is he making? How much production is he getting? Is he the matchup the Jazz need in the second round of the playoffs if they get to the third round and get to a conference final? 
Is he what they need? And I think they're going to go spend that money on somebody else. Who? That's what we find out in the coming days. We played Justin Zanuck earlier this morning. If you missed it, he'll get replayed later in the day. Yach, maybe we should replay it later in the day. What about that? What about that, Yach? We can do that. All right. Because I'm still currently batting. What am I batting? Zero. Well, I have one guest. So. Oh, I meant on NBA writers. On NBA writers. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm, I'm, You're over on NBA writers this morning. And I get they were all up till midnight, and then they were writing till 1 a.m. And like, hey, would you like the opportunity to talk to DJ at 7.45 in the morning when you've been asleep for four and a half hours? Probably not their go-to answer. Probably not. Love to. So let's replay Justin Zanuck at 9 then, unless you get a bigger name on another line. And we'll let you hear Justin Zanuck. Also, if you're not going to be available at 9, we already played it in the 6 o'clock hour, so you just find the first hour of our show at 1280thezone.com, and you hear Justin Zanuck. He was in the third segment of the first hour. And we'll put him in the first segment of the 9 o'clock hour. So everything's out there, available on podcasts, wherever you get podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, whatever. Whatever your go-to is, it's out there. Or you can just go to 1280thezone.com, anything you miss all day long. The first question to Justin is, what about Derek Favors? <laughs> uh, guys, we've got new rules in the NBA, and I, I can't talk about any trades that may or may not be happening that haven't been announced and finalized. We've got to wait for the new NBA year. So that was the end of that. He shut that down right out of the gate. And we're done. But then this morning the, the trade went out. But you've got to wait for the new year, which I think kicks in August 1. It's weird. All the dates are different with the season being later. You had everything nailed down before. But I think they just moved it one month. We're only one year away from getting back to that. I look forward to that. I don't want to have to learn new information. I'm with you. It hurts my head. I've been a proponent for the NBA to start on Christmas, but... You're I, over that now, aren't I, you? Having experienced it, it's just a eh, weird, not weird Not so much. Deal. It, it does help with the start of the season of football, sure. but it messes with the end of the season. That's what I was going to say. And I'd rather that the start of the season be a little jacked up than the end of the season jacked Correct. up. Yeah, you got it. That's, and I'd be okay if they shorten the season, but that means they all have to take less money. That means the owners get less money, the GMs get less money, the coaches get less money, and the players get less money. So now you can imagine what kind of enthusiasm momentum there is for this in the NBA. Yep. Not really. Not happening. Yeah, but haven't experienced it. I was okay. Yeah. We saw that. We saw it play out. But let's go back to the normal setup. We're going to get another year of complaining. We're, that's going to happen. We're going to get another year of complaining because it's going to be a short off season for the teams that got to the conference final and the final. It's going to be a super short off season. The Jazz. Yeah, if you're a second round team, which the Jazz are, the the four teams that go out in the second round, that's the equivalent of going to the NBA Finals. So they get a shorter off season, but not dramatically so. But if you played until mid-July, and the season's going to open in mid-October, you're looking at three months, and you're going to spend one of those three months in camp. And for the guys who played in the Olympics, now all of a sudden you get why some of the guys didn't want to play in the Olympics. It really does make sense. And are the men going to make it through? They got a game this weekend, and it's the Czech Republic. This is low-end European team. They ought to be able to handle this. If they can't handle this, the red flags are massive. Yeah, if you can't be Thomas Santoransky and whoever else is right. playing for the Czech yeah. Republic. This is, um, of the four games, le- uh, Iran, the one they just won by 50, that was the easiest game they were going to have in the whole tournament. And it was easy. This is the next easiest game. And then it's on. So if they win, it's nothing to get excited about. If they struggle or lose, you're worried and shrugging your shoulders. They ought to, they ought to roll through this. And then it's into the medal round, and then it gets nervy. 
But just because it's nervy doesn't mean you can't win. It's not impossible to win a gold. I'm not completely throwing up my hands. I'm worried. I'm concerned. I have been since the first time I saw him play. What are they now? They played six games and kept scoring all of them, right? And they're three and three. So are they looking a little better? Yes. And the guys who are coming over from the NBA Finals, get past the, uh, the jet lag and the travel and all that stuff, and maybe you can help a little more. Still not much familiarity, but... Hey, the U.S. Women's Soccer found a, team, found a way to grind it out. They won their quarterfinal. They needed penalties. They had a couple goals disallowed for being offside. Apparently, they have more goals disallowed than anyone else in the tournament. Are you aware of the offside rule? But they won on penalties, so they, they're on to the semis. We'll see what the guys do and how they set themselves up. We'll know the seating for the, the tournament after this weekend. Yak, what would you like me to read? Let's give away Summer League tickets. Ooh. All right. NBA action is back August 3rd, 4th, and 6th. Salt Lake City Summer League returns to Vivint Arena. Lower Bowl tickets started just $12 to see the Jazz, the Spurs, and the Grizzlies compete. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, that's only three teams. Yeah, it's a new game. They've got three baskets. The floor is set up as a triangle. They're trying out new rules. It's going to be five on five on five. It's going to be crazy. You're going to love it. Or more likely, the Jazz are going to have two teams. What are they, a blue team and a white team? Blue team and the white team. Blue team and the white team. Visit slcsummerleague.com. Lock down your seats today. Think about that, though. 15 players, three hoops. Think about it. It could work. Be total chaos. August 3rd, 4th, and 6th. That is next Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. Week from tonight, it'll all be over. They'll be off to Vegas. And is Butler going to play in that? How's that going to work out? I look forward to hearing about that next week. All right, DJ and PK, coming up next, I look forward to hearing some dirt from a guy who was the head of compliance in the Pac-12, former BYU basketball assistant coach Ron Barker is going to join us next. By the way, the detail I left out, it's Caller 12, 855-340-ZONE. Caller 12, 855-340-ZONE. Call now, win some summer league tickets. Ron Barker, former head of compliance for the Pac-12 and a BYU basketball assistant coach, joins us next. Stay with us. The Big Show. The Big Show. With Jake Scott and Gordon Monson. Former BYU athletic director Rondo Felberg. I'm sure you found me a decade ago saying this was going to continue to evolve until we get to a point of natural stability. I still believe that a football-centric organization that has four 16-team leagues that include conference-based rivalries that lead you up to a conference playoff and then to a national playoff. And that's what the SEC's just done. I fault the Big 12 for not having done anything when they had the chance nearly a decade ago to actually be ahead of the curve on this, and they didn't. Catch the Big Show weekdays from 2 to 7, presented by Big O' Tires, the team you trust. On 97.5, 1280, The Zone, in the Zone Sports Network. Updates brought to you by Davis Vision. Davis Vision loves teachers. If you're a teacher who needs LASIK, Davis Vision wants to give back. Schedule a free consultation appointment. Inquire about additional savings to their summer sale price. Call them today at 801-253-3080 or check them out at davisvisionmd.com. Time now to talk college sports with Ron Barker. 
Ron Barker joined the Pac-10 as an assistant commissioner for governance and enforcement in October of 2001 and was promoted to associate commissioner in February of 2006. We're going to talk with him as he joins us right now on the Smart Rain guest line. July is considered Smart Irrigation Month. To celebrate Best of State Award winner, Smart Rain is giving away free smart controllers to commercial properties until the end of July. Hosting costs not included. Visit SmartRain.net or call 877-346-3333 for more information. Ron, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. So, Ron, you are a former BYU assistant basketball coach under Roger Reed, and then you eventually graduated to cracking skulls in the Pac-10. I'm sorry, did I embellish that too much? No, that's pretty much what I did. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right, so uh, I think a lot of people driving around, you know, have heard stories about how much cheating is going on. And as a longtime member of the media, I have heard spectacular stories. And I will say, when is the last year that you were involved in the uh, conference governance? So I left the Pac-12 in October of this past year, October 2020. So I was there for 19 years, and I was involved in everything that went on during that time. The most, some of the most recent stuff. There's still an ongoing FBI men's basketball investigation involving about 20 schools, and I was in the middle of that. And, I don't know why it's taking the NCAA so long, but it does sometimes, and this one's taking forever. Okay, so you basically stole 90% of my question. You're a BYU guy, and I'm not, so I was going to say, why does it take the NBA so bleeping, or the NBA, the NCAA so bleeping long? But can you explain to people why, if there's FBI wiretaps, we're sitting around a couple years later and nothing's happened to some of these schools? Yeah, so anytime law enforcement gets involved, it just extends the process. The NCAA usually takes a wait and, and wait for the law enforcement to get done before they'll move on it. So, you know, this one's taking forever. The the uh, Marcy Blues case where the parents were driving uh, coaches and making them look like they were athletes so they could get their kids into schools, that's still ongoing with the NCAA as well, too, as well, even though some of the parents have served prison time and been out of prison for a while. So it just takes a while. If it doesn't involve the, uh, law enforcement, then you can get it done more more quickly. But even then, it will still take up to a year. The, the Reggie Bush USC case that I worked on took four years. And even to this day, they don't know for sure. They, people don't know what actually happened in that one. Okay, side note on the Reggie Bush deal. So his parents got a new home in Spring Valley. This will shock you, but I didn't actually grow up in San Diego. I grew up in the suburb of Spring Valley. And I lived on the western edge by Sweetwater Lake when I was in elementary school. And then in junior high and high school, between 7th and 8th grade, we moved out to kind of the eastern edge, Steel Canyon, where that new high school is out there. For the life of me, when you're Reggie Bush, how do you not end up with a house in La Jolla? What do you do with a house in Spring Valley? Can you shed any light on what happened there? Because... I've lived in Spring Valley. You're Reggie Bush. Yeah, so this is a perfect example. Since you're from there, I'm from Orange County, California. Uh At the time, everyone kept making a big deal about, oh, he's living in a three-quarter of a million dollar house. They didn't get the house. They just lived there for free for a year. So they didn't get the house, but they lived there. But I kept telling the NCAA people, look, three-quarters of a million dollars in San Diego isn't the same as three-quarters of a million dollars in Indianapolis. And that took a long time for them to get that through their heads. And I said, go out to San Diego and look at the house, and you'll see what we're talking about. But in the Reggie Bush case, the, Reggie Bush's stepdad was going to start a sports marketing firm with a guy named uh, 
I'm not even going to names, but they're it was the guy who's well known, and Reggie Bush didn't know they were doing it. And so the, the NCAA kept trying to link it to USC, saying USC is involved in this. And every time they tried to tie it to Pete Carroll, they struck out. So I actually sat between Pete Carroll and Lane Kiffin at the hearing, and they kept trying to figure out how is USC involved in this. And they never really tied it much to USC except for a couple of phone calls between an assistant coach and the guy who was doing this with Reggie Bush's stepdad. And in some of the interviews we found out, we found out why some of those phone calls were going on. So I'm not an apologist for USC by any means. I've worked at the Pac-12 or 11 schools, wanted to see them go down. But at the, that was one of probably one of the biggest miscarriages of justice for actually what USC was involved in doing. So I think people assume that over the years USC has cheated a lot. But I think people assume that in the last 10 to 15 years – Oregon's been doing their fair cheating, and nothing worse than the Will Willie Lyles, that lame explanation, I didn't know who you were talking about. Oh, please. So how guilty is Oregon of using middlemen and runners to get athletes, and is UCLA not doing that? And is that the biggest difference between how much Chip Kelly won in Oregon and how much he isn't winning at UCLA? No, I think the big thing with the Oregon case at the time with Willie Lyles was Everybody was doing that with what Oregon was doing. Oregon got caught. I used to laugh and say at the Pac-12, you know, there, some of our schools are doing what everybody's doing. We're just not as good at it. And so when Oregon got caught doing something that probably 70% of the schools were doing at the time, it was just another case of, okay, so you need to get better at how you do this, which I shouldn't say that. But there, there are things going on that everybody does. It's like speeding on the freeway. That's the example I used to use. You're driving on the California freeways. Hardly anybody's going 65. And if a policeman pulls you over and you're going 75, you can't say, well, look, everybody's doing it. You're the one who got caught. And so that's what happens a lot in college sports is somebody gets caught for doing something that everybody's doing. Um, you know, I, I, what I'm trying to do now, I left. I wasn't able to talk about my cases. wasn't able to talk about what I was doing. And so for 20 years I sat and worked, and people would come up to me, my friends who knew what I was doing, and say, you know, tell me what's going on here. And I couldn't. So the stories that are out there, people don't have a, a kind of, you kind of get the, uh, the subterfuge a little bit and the, the media covers a little bit on the top and then it's forgotten. So people don't really know the details of what's going on. So what I'm trying to do now is write fictional books based on actual cases. So the first one I wrote is called The Reluctant Players and it's on Amazon. It's, it's about a junior college basketball coach who basically taught, taught his two-star players how to cheat on a math class, a correspondence math class, and then once they did and were successful in it, he then blackmailed them and said, if you don't go to this Division One school that I'm going to get hired at, I'm going to expose you. And, and that, that happened? Kind of that goes on. And that yeah, happened? That happened. Actually, true case, yes. Tell us which league. I'm not going to tell you. I'm oh, not come gonna on. Because one of the purposes for me is I don't want to expose people that have gone through things 20 years ago. If someone's guilty... You know, you can go and read about but all the innocent people that got caught up in. The two players in this, they cheated on a math class, which isn't great. But then they got blackmailed into going into a school they didn't want to go to with a coach they didn't like, and it ruined their careers. They never ended up doing anything. They were both pretty good players. So the SEC, huh? I was at the NCAA for about two and a half, almost three years, enough to see what, how, how messed up it is and how hard it is to be in enforcement there. I worked SEC cases quite a bit. I worked all over the place at the NCAA. And, you know, there's things that go on that people have no clue about, and you get a tip of the iceberg when someone big gets caught. That when the stuff that's going on day to day after day, and, unless it's a big school, people don't care that much about it. So do... Do SEC schools cheat more, 
and do they cheat more competently? Those are two different things, but the quality and the quantity of the cheating, that's the perception. How close is it to the reality? You know, I don't know that you can say anyone cheats more. Or, you know, sometimes it's just someone, you know, the pack, when there's a pack 10 I used to process 250 violations a year. So I was about 25 per school. And most of them weren't cheating as much as someone just made a mistake. And what the goal was to try to teach them from it, put a little penalty on it, and then move on and hope they don't do it again. When you get to the bigger stuff, the, the actual real cheating, it takes a concerted effort to do it and get away with it. And so there's not as much as people that's going on, but the, what is going on is very well organized. And so the people who have the most money, I think, are the ones who are, ones are able to do it better. They know how to do it. I, I don't accuse anybody. I have a lot of good friends. Greg Sankey and I are good friends with Commissioner of SEC. So I don't accuse anybody. I just think there are some people that are better than others. Okay, so we're joined right now by uh, former BYU assistant basketball coach Ron Barker, coached uh, under Roger Reed, late 80s, early 90s, and then head of compliance for Pac-12, was there for a couple decades. And you know, because of your time at the NCAA, some of the stuff that happened nationally. So PK and I have been doing the radio show since 2002. And before that, we moved to the market in 92-93. So we've heard a lot of stuff. And... Stuff that we believe is true, but we can't prove because one angry person leaks it, but you don't have it confirmed by somebody else, and you know there's an agenda, so you got to be super careful. But there's been enough stuff out there, both locally, regionally, and nationally, that we kind of get a feel for what's going on, even if we can't prove any individual specific case. You're writing these books. Are you ever going to write a book about a star athlete who everyone knows, who not only got paid to go to school, but was able to charge as much as 25000 for a home visit because it helped the other schools recruit to say they were in on this star player, and a home visit helped them recruit other star players who wanted to play with said player. So I'm, I, everything I'm going to write is going to be fictional, based mm-hmm. on real cases. Right. So I'm never going to point the finger and say, hey, who's doing this and, and this is what's happening. Right. That's not my goal. I don't want to do that. I've 20 years to live that. I am writing real cases. This is a real, I believe this is a real case. I believe that really happened. I, I, when I was at the NCAA, I investigated, investigated a case that you can go and read about where the high school coach of the, the player's mom was illiterate and had no dad in the picture. So the high school coach is the one shopping the player around. He charged $5,000 for every visit to a school, and multiple schools took it. And then when he finally sold the guy, sold his own player to a school and took, I think it was $25,000 about a Ford Explorer, the assistant high school coach blew the whistle. And I'm sitting in Memphis, Tennessee at midnight talking to this assistant coach, sitting there going, wait, what you're telling me is so incredulous. How can you're telling us? How can you're coming forward? And he said, I was supposed to get a car, too, and I didn't get one. And that's why he came forward with it. The high school coach eventually got brought up on charges and served jail time. And I believe it was an old statute on the book about slavery and selling a human being. And that's what they got him on. So stuff like that goes on. And that, and that involves some pretty big schools. The school, you know, there's four or five people at the NCAA working on it. And my particular point of it was one school that was paying for the, coach, for the high school coach to bring the kid on a visit. And we're able to do that. You know, just to give you an example of things, my very last case at the NCAA that I was involved with was Rick Majerus. And I told Utah when I came, I said, look, I used to work at BYU. I want to be fair. I want to be on the up and up. 
and I have no axe to grind. I like Rick McGarris. I thought he was a great coach. And the NCAA couldn't get over it. Well, he's living in a hotel. And I said, yeah, he lives in the hotel. So when he takes a kid on a, a dinner, you know, you can take an occasional meal back at the time, and he took a player to dinner at the hotel, that's his home. And the NCAA said, no, that's not permissible. And so they went after him for a whole bunch of stuff, for having pizza practice and just dumb stuff. And I kept sitting there going, you mean there's all this stuff going on and we're going after a coach for taking the kid to dinner where he lives at the hotel? And that was the kind of stuff that drove me crazy at the NCAA when there's big, big stuff going on. But the NCAA's got their hands tied. They you know, have no subpoena powers. They can't touch, get people to force them to talk to them. They can't lie about what they're doing. You know, it's, it's a, almost a miracle they catch anything at all. Now that name, image, and likeness money is legal, for lack of a better term, can the money essentially be laundered? Money that was being paid to get kids to certain schools and all that, can they now just find a booster, a business to take care of a kid? And so is a lot of what was illegal going to be legal? Well, when they were talking name, image, and likeness, and I was in on the conversations, I would be the only one in the room with the experience of doing enforcement. And I would sit there going, wait a second. So what you're telling me now is if I'm a booster at a big school and have unlimited money, I can tell a high school kid, hey, I'm going to do a T-shirt business for you. You're going to make so much per T-shirts, and we're going to guarantee you're going to sell 100,000 T-shirts. And everyone goes, no, no, you can't do it as part of incentive and recruiting. I'm like, how are you going to catch that? So you basically, to catch a booster could actually do that and, and have agreement with the kid in advance that we're going to give you this amount of money as long as nobody can prove that he had that agreement as a recruiting tool. So, yes, that's going to happen. I, I think it's naive to think it's not going to happen. So are we going to get to the point, then, that the only schools that get busted are the ones where law enforcement gets involved for one reason or another, and those cases will probably be few and far between? Or you're going to, that's one possibility. You're also going to have cases, which I've had before, where a family feels like what's going on is terrible, so they tape record coaches or play or the boosters telling them things in advance. So if you can get some kind of proof of that, then, then you're able to get that. The case I worked on that I wrote the book on, The Reluctant Players, is it, one of the reasons that we've had tough, a tough time getting is how do you prove that a school is going to hire a coach if he brings players with him? You know, that's almost impossible to prove that in this particular case, there was an ex-wife with an axe to grind who had all of the proof and mailed it to me anonymously, and I got everything shown with the cheating on the test, showing who helped and how they did it, and that's the only way you catch this kind of stuff. Do you think I that used to, oh, I used to talk to coaches and say they'd complain about something? I'd say, How can I prove that? And they'd say, Well, I'm not going to talk on the record. And I said, Well, if I don't get you on the record, then how do I prove it? And they'd say, Well, I'll give you advance notice and we'll film it for you and we'll send it to you. You know, and, and so that, you know, it takes a coach getting really mad because one of the big problems is coaches don't turn each other in, but then they complain about all the cheating that goes on. And so it's hard to do that. But, yeah, it's going to take either law enforcement or it's going to take somebody that has enough of an axe to grind that they're going to go and tape it themselves or film it themselves. Ron Barker, former head of compliance for the Pac-12 and a BYU assistant basketball coach from 1989 to 91, joining us. So in the past, there have been cases where boosters want to hang out with star athletes and take them on trips and vacations, and the NCAA would go after people for that kind of stuff. But under name, image, and likeness, is that all going to be okay now? If you have money and you want to buddy up uh, to some star athlete, is that okay? No, you have to, there has to be some kind of uh, service rendered. That they can't just have, you know, you, could, you can get really creative and find ways to do what you want to do, but there has to be 
you can't just say, I want to be a buddy and take this person to wherever, Vegas or wherever. You have to say, we're going to go there and we're going to have an autograph signing show or something of that nature where this athlete is actually doing something. So but it's going to be interesting to watch this unfold. Right now, I think everybody's really the alarmist, and there's not going to be that many kids who profit a lot off of it. But every kid that is from a small town can go back and do a summer camp at that town and make a little bit of money. And when, when I started in college athletics, my attitude used to be athletes shouldn't get paid. They're getting college scholarships. I work my butt off to get the same thing they're getting, and they get tutors, and they get, you know, it's it's really a good deal for the athlete, and they, and they get a degree that is worth how much money the rest of their life. I've completely changed. I'm 180 degrees different because you have coaches making five, six, seven million dollars, commissioners making five million dollars. So why shouldn't the student athletes get their share? I, I've changed in, in that regard over the last 20 years. So give me one more book idea you're working on that you haven't written yet, but you're going you're gonna to get to it. You got the knowledge. Well, I'm working on my uh, – the second one's almost done, and the third one I'm just starting. It's about a, a school that had a star running back, and he ended up – he was a 19-year-old inner-city kid and had an affair with the head of compliance at the school who was a 30-year-old woman who was very prim and proper. And when I did the interview, the kid kept telling me that she was giving him things – and I said, you know, I talked to her, and I've talked to you. No offense to you, but do you have any kind of proof? And I talked to him several times. I just didn't believe him. He hands me his phone and shows me text messages with the most vulgar things I'd ever read in my life from that 30-year-old head of compliance. And when I confronted her with it, she said, uh, and got up and walked out of the room with her attorney and, and left. Left her job, completely disappeared. In the middle of the case, the star football player got into an altercation at a dance club, totally unrelated, and ended up stabbing and killing somebody who was also a former player at the school. When they called me the next day, it was on Saturday morning, I thought he killed the woman. And I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this just happened. It just like it makes you feel sick. And then I found out it was unrelated, still terrible. That player obviously no longer plays. He's in jail, I think. I, I don't know if he's on death row or if he just got a lifetime sentence. But those are the kind of things that happen you just don't hear about. Well, you stunned Jake and I right there at the end of the interview with that. Holy cow. Yeah. The, the, the one, you know, the, the, the first one I wrote, the reason I picked it is because it's just such an easy thing to understand. What this coach did, he's the junior college coach, he said to the two players, you have to take the correspondence class because you can't pass the math class. Then he wore gloves every time he touched paperwork because he had been involved in a violation earlier at another school. He helped him with the test. He went to two tutors for the junior college who are 18-year-old girls who, who had no clue what he was doing. And he went to one and said, these players have to do the even problems. If you'll do the odd problems, he can work, they'll see how you work it out and they'll be able to do it. And then he went to the other one and said the exact opposite. So the girls were doing everything, not knowing it. Then he would take the papers. The players would copy them over in their own handwriting, and then he would turn it in. When he came to the final exam, he had to have a practice. So he went to the superintendent of state of schools for the state of Mississippi not in what school that, who was a buddy of his, and said, hey, will you practice this exam? I'll bring some beer out. We'll watch a game while they take it. And so they sat in the guy's house and copied over a final exam that the coach had had, had the girls do right by covering it up when he made it so it didn't say final exam. Then they passed it all. Everything's gone great. And then he goes to the kids and says, hey, so you're going to get exposed. I'm going to tell everyone what you did. It would be such a shame unless you go to school X. And then he got hired there. When this all got proved and I interviewed him, he had been fired by this time. He was 
getting his law degree, and I interviewed him in the state Supreme Court chambers where he was an inter- uh, clerking for the state Supreme Court. So you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's just unbelievable, these kind of things that happen. And I think people would be interested in reading going, hmm, this is just an actual real case. This is how it unfolds. You kind of see how the NCA works and some of the limitations. You see when they screw up. And so I'm trying to give a shed light on something that people just don't know much about. Because even when I'm working, when I was working the USC case, I used to read the media reports, and no, it's not the media's fault. They just don't have the the understanding of how the NCA process works and how how weird it is. And so I would read things on ESPN and go, man, that's completely wrong with what's happening. But I couldn't talk, and I wasn't going to talk to anybody. So I'm hoping through this to kind of shed a little bit more light so people can read the books and go, oh, oh. And then when you'll see a future case, maybe you won't be so quick to judge or rush to judgment. Maybe you'll want to hear a little bit more and be able to think a little bit more critically about, okay, here's what I'm reading, but what actually is going on? And, and I think you'll be able to understand things a little bit more clearly. So where can people get these books? The first book's on Amazon. If you type in Ron Barker or The Reluctant Players, it's there. The second one I'm pretty close to having done. I think I can do two a year is what I'm thinking. So I'm hoping to have – I've already laid it out six to eight books, and I can do more than that, but that's just to see if it gets going. Ultimately, I'd like to do get into a TV show like Law & Order Meets the Sports World. When I was at the Pac-12, I got approached twice by TV people. One time it was just someone wanted to do a reality show, and I said, you can't do this in a reality show because – who in the middle of an investigation is going to give up but find the rights away and, and let everyone explode? And that's not going to happen. And then the other time I got blown out by the guy who worked for David Letterman in Worldwide Pants, and they wanted me to, they wanted to talk to me about it, and I thought, oh, this is going to be good. And they, they loved it, and they thought it was fascinating. And then they said, okay, thanks. And I went, well, why did you fly me out here? And the guy said, well, we only do comedy. And I said, okay, so why am I here? And he said, oh, we had money left in our research budget. We just wanted to talk to you. We think this is fascinating. (laughs) So, you know, it's just so weird. That guy ended up producing the movie Concussion with with Will Smith, and he stayed in touch with me. He thinks it's a great idea, and he's trying to sell it around. But, you know, I just, every time he talks to me, I'm like, "Ah, I don't know how much pull he has in Hollywood. It's not my world. I don't know it. So, but I keep thinking that would be a great TV show. I think that kind of stuff in Hollywood, there's a lot of stuff that's on the back burner and only a small percentage ever gets to the front burner, but you just have to stay in touch with people who have stuff on the back burner because nobody really ever knows what's going to get made. Yeah, and for me, I couldn't talk for 20 years about my job. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of now all of a sudden, I'm even these interviews, like right now, I'm sitting there going, mm, how much can I say? How much can't I say? And, and I again, I don't have a bad, bad, evil bone in my body. I don't want to burn people. I don't. That's not my desire to expose people. But I'd like to have people understand the process and hear some interesting stories. I go out and do uh, corporate speaking gigs and do motivational talks, and I tell a lot of these stories, and so people are fascinated by it. When I worked for the Pac-12, and then people would say, "What do you do?" And I'd say, "I worked for the Pac-12." They either were fascinated and went, "Whoa," or they'd go, "Oh, the phone company." So that's the two <laughs> extremes you get, you know. So I never took it that seriously. Well, Ron, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for coming on, and we will uh, we'll have you on again. We appreciate it. Great. I'll be happy to talk to you. If you ever have an NCAA enforcement thing that comes up and you need some source, give me a call. I'm happy to talk to you, but thanks for the time. All right. Ron Barker, former head of compliance for the Pac-12 and a BYU assistant basketball coach from 1989 to 91. DJ and PK. Man, there's some jaw-dropping stories right there. He told stories I didn't even know to ask the questions about. Holy cow. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Number one. Make us your number one preset.
The Zone Sports Network is Utah's number one choice for sports radio in Utah. From DJ and PK to Hanson Scotting and the Big Show with Gordon Monson and Jake Scott, the Zone continues to dominate the competition. Thank you to all of you that continue to make the Zone Sports Network Utah's highest rated, most listened to sports station. Your home for the best coverage of the teams you're passionate about is right here. 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. The Top 1660 is back in the Zone Sports Network. Listen every day at 1.30 as Hanson Scotty announced another member of the Top 60 players in the state of Utah. As we count you down to the start of the college football season, it's the Top 1660 presented by Cypress Credit Union and Icon Health and Fitness here on the Zone Sports Network. Lloyd just stuck his head in. He just listened to the last segment with Ron Barker. He goes, story time with Ron Barker. He didn't really hold much back, did he? If you were just joining us, Ron Barker was head of the uh, compliance for the Pac-10, he worked for the NCAA, and he told a few stories without naming the schools or the coaches or the players, but just the stories, and you'll want to go to 1280thezone.com and listen to that. And then you're going to want to send a link to three or four of your friends so that they listen to it, because he laid out a few scenarios there that uh, if PK and I told you, you'd think we were making it up. Yach, do we want to take a break right now? All right, Yach says break right now on the other side. A surprise! You're going to like it. Next, stay with us. DJ PK in the morning, proudly presented by Mark Miller Subaru. Time to talk a little NBA draft with Patrick Kinahan. PK, how are you? Special. Butler, reaction. He did it, man. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I, I did get it. Oh, right off the bat. How do I do it? I don't know. Jared Butler, Baylor star, 40th overall pick. Would have gone much higher, 15th pick, give or take a few, but he had a heart condition. So do you think when they assemble the final roster that they're so high on him that he is the third point guard, or do you think they bring in a uh, veteran to back up, assuming they resign Conley, that they bring in a veteran to back up Conley and, uh, and Mitchell? Well, they already have one in Ingles, don't they? Uh, but instead, because they think Ingles got worn down, do they want someone else on the roster? Or Butler is that someone else? Well, I don't know that your third team point guard is going to get worn down. I think that uh, that's a situation if Conley's out and Mitchell's out. Don't forget, they were out at the same time. I don't expect that to happen. I'm going to sneeze here in a second, I think, so hold on. Okay, holding on. <laughs> wow. Oh, that man. A good one. Oh, no, I woke up the whole floor. Uh, so... Uh, he's a combo guard, they say. Well, what does that mean? It means he shoots off the dribble and he can Uh catch and shoot. I think that's what that means. And and I think that's more important for what the team needs right now as far as being able, as opposed to being able just to be a point guard. So I look for the former, not the latter, the catch and shoot type of thing. The numbers are there. They're very impressive at the collegiate ranks. Does what does that mean at the pro ranks? You know, he has to prove it. So we don't know that until we actually see that. But the thing is, he's got the pedigree. It's there. The size is good enough. They obviously targeted him. They got who they wanted. You read and all these reviews of drafts, and you're right. They, I didn't see 15. I think the best I saw was like 22. You're plucking them at 40. So 
big difference there between 22, say, and be conservative rather than go 15, say 22 versus 40. So they're getting somebody that they really like. And you have to look at this management and say, okay, if they really, really like somebody, it usually comes to pass. I was talking to Whittingham the other day when we had him on the air when we were doing media day. And I said, who is defense in the defensive secondary You've got to replace Nate Ritchie. And I said, the thing about Nate Ritchie is you you had been speaking him up, talking him up long before he got there. And he turns out to be a really good player. So normally the point I'm making is when the coaching staff, in this case, the scouting staff and the management, if they're identifying a player real early and then they end up getting that player, there's some reason there. So I have an optimism that this kid, this kid can come in and do what they want him to do. I don't know about the point guard duties yet. I haven't, obviously I haven't seen anything at the pro level, but shooting I think is shooting. And if you can make shots at the collegiate level, it's probably a good chance you can make shots at the pro level. Derek favors is traded. I'm not surprised. You're not surprised. Uh, but there are a lot of Jazz fans who are unhappy because he was very popular and they liked him. So would you like to tell people why the Jazz traded him and a lot of people, not just you and I, could see that coming? Well, yeah, obviously. They were going to trade somebody to free up money. And so who do you want? Do you want Bogdanovich traded? Do you want Ingles traded? You can't keep everybody. And they just, you know, unless you want to pay outrageous amounts of money. So when you look at it, who had in terms of impact of the three that I just mentioned, I think I guess you could put Royce O'Neal in there too, but it probably wasn't going to happen. Who had the least impact? Well, it was favors, right? So you're giving away the least impactful player of the players that we just mentioned. So from that perspective, it allows you to have the money to keep Conley and you're giving away the least impactful player. Niang doesn't make enough to where you can put him in there, right? You needed to have somebody who made, was making 10 or more million, right? That's the way I looked at it. So with that in mind, he was the guy. He was the logical guy because it's the least impactful on your team. I realize our fans, as a lot of fans do, they get close to guys, even though they don't even really know them and that player has no idea who you are. You feel like you get close to him. I understand that, but... In the final analysis, rather than perceived relationships, which are basically one way anyway, overriding factor should be the quality of the team and how much it could win. So from that perspective, it was clearly it was the right thing to do. So biggest surprise of the draft, the team you thought, oh, they got that guy. That's awesome. Oh. Them. <laughs> that's, that's so hard to say, man. I still like the kid from Gonzaga going to Orlando. Orlando. Jalen you know, Suggs. Yes. And Orlando, uh, you know, they draft, they've got Fultz that they put money in the kid from Washington via Philly really hasn't worked out to the level, certainly obviously being the number one pick. And then last year, Cole Anthony, Greg Anthony's son. So the position there gets a little crowded, but at the same time, I always believe my philosophy has always been best player available rather than worrying about position. Because if you draft somebody who's really good, and I think, and I've been saying this, and I'm biased because I saw Suggs play so much, I think this kid is going to be a big-time player, right? So you've already got some players at that position. Well, if this guy is better than them, you have to take him. 
And if those other guys are good enough, well, then you can trade them for assets. So especially when you are, seems like Orlando hasn't won since Dwight Howard or Shaq. I mean, it just seems like they have been down for so long now. I'd have to double check as far as how long they've been down, but it seems like it's been a good while. So you need quality players, and I don't care what you have someplace else. If this player that you believe is quality, you take him. So I'm excited for them uh, to see what he can do. I would have drafted him higher, but they didn't. So I'm looking for him. He's He was my pick to really be a breakout player in the draft. And obviously you got four guys went ahead of him, Mobley to Cleveland, and this Cunningham was identified as the number one pick. I watched him play a little bit just to get a feel for him. Looks like he has all the skills. And these teams at the top here who drafted these players, these young players should be able to come in and play immediately because those teams basically suck. Orlando has not won a playoff series since they went to the conference finals with Dwight Howard the year after they went to the NBA finals. So they haven't won a playoff series since 2010. Seven lottery teams, four first-round outs. So you're right. They've been down. Now the Lakers, trying to win a second title in three years. They trade for Russell Westbrook. Well, that's a top-heavy roster. All the money's gone. So are Kyle Kuzma, Montrez Harrell, Contavious Caldwell-Pope. So now they've got to build most of their roster with guys who are basically at the NBA minimum. They're going to be able to put enough players around their big three? Oh, yeah, man. Mac McClug, is that how you say his name? The kid out of Texas Tech or was that Georgetown? They picked him up as a free agent, man, and he didn't get drafted. He's a bulldog. Is he the next Lou Dort who didn't get drafted and made the roster there, obviously, for Oklahoma City? Yeah, well, I mean, they had to do something, right? They weren't going to go anywhere with the guys that they had. Now, everybody's excited about Westbrook, but what type of fit? You know, these pieces have to fit. This is a gigantic puzzle. And especially in today's NBA game, do the Lakers have enough three-point shooting? Right now, the answer to me is absolutely not. So, you know, what are they going to do with Westbrook? We know he's an enormous individual talent, but he's got to have the ball in his hands, and he's not a three-point shooter. Right. Yeah, so you're going to kick it out to him? If I'm the opposing team, I hope you do. <laughs> because his most, where he's most effective, obviously, is when he's got the ball and he's moving and he's running the proverbial downhill, right? And he goes in for the slam or does something spectacular. That's great. So I think that in today's modern game, how do the Lakers play? I think Vogel's going to have to make an adjustment to go away from that because who on that roster are you looking to make threes? Uh, right now, I'm, Caruso's a free agent. I don't even know if he's going to come back, right? See what they've got there and what his value is to the league. So who else out there? You know, I'm not sure what they're going to do. So get them in transition and they can be uh, like Showtime light, basically, right? with LeBron and Westbrook, both of them obviously are outstanding at that. So it sort of forces them to go along those lines as opposed to running a half-court offense where the ball's moving around like the Jazz and you end up with a wide-open three, whether it's from the top of the corner or the side, whatever it might be. So I'm interested to see how this plays and how it comes together. He's a big name and a wildly individual talent, but how does he play off what LeBron needs? 
I probably need to talk to you about the other Washington to L.A. trade. The Nationals just send Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to the Dodgers. Man, the the Dodgers. Larry the Laker, who's also a Dodger fan, is on social media, and he is is upset because the Padres have the go-ahead to go pursue it, and the Dodgers don't, and then it turns out the Dodgers do. (laughs) These two teams. And the Giants are sitting up there not making all these moves, and they're winning the division. Now, there's still 60 games to go, so anything can happen. They may not win it, but they're leading the division. Yeah, well, that was a stunner. I mean, you get – Scherzer's a good player, obviously. He's a pitcher, and he's, what, three times Cy Young. So he's pitched in all sorts of big games uh, as far as that goes, obviously, in the World Series. So you need as much pitching as you can get. You need it. I and mean, it's just – I don't know that you ever have enough, particularly for the Dodgers. they got three guys – of their five out of the rotation now. And I told you, I don't think Bauer's coming back in May had Tommy John and Kershaw is due back here. As far as I know, sometime in August. Uh, so we still have another week or two, but they do need some pitching. And then, Oh, by the way, Trey Turner, this guy's a big time stud of a player, 28 years of age. And Corey Seager, who is due back. I think today he's been out for several weeks and months now with an injury. Uh, he's a Scott Boris client. He's a free agent. So where are they going to be able to resign him? Do they want to resign him? I'm not sure. So Trey Turner right now, to me, is playing as well as anybody in the National League as far as a position player. So you get him. You know, he came up as a center fielder. He's super fast. He came up as a center fielder. Then uh, they made some moves, and they moved him to short. Well, Seager's going to come back. So what do they do? Do they move Turner to second? That's what I'm hearing could possibly be. But the Dodgers have had all sorts of injuries. Guys in and out of the lineup. Betts is out right now. And Bellinger is limited. He's got a hamstring, I think. And he's having an awful season. And so he has to play first. He hasn't been able to play as much outfield. So do they move Trey Turner there? He gives them a stud of a player. He's got power. He can run. And he can play multiple positions defensively. So I know Scherzer's a big-time player and all that, but I love the addition of Trey Turner, and they give him their top four prospects. Now we'll see. I actually went to the game on Sunday, and one of the prospects that they gave was this kid Gray, a pitcher, Josiah Gray, and he made his first start, and I thought he looked good for his first big league start. Well, now he's out the door, so it doesn't matter from the Dodger perspective. But obviously, to get that type of talent, you've got to give up something. And it's funny, my wife, we were talking about this last night, she doesn't understand the concept. Well, if you're rebuilding in baseball, why do you give away your best players? How does that help you rebuild by giving away your best players? <laughs> and I'm trying to c- explain the concept. Well, you don't want to be paying these guys big money when you're not capable of winning. Yeah, but they're your best players and you're trying to get better. Why would you give away the best players? So we were kind of knocking our heads against the wall a little bit. It was, And I get it. It's, it is difficult to understand the concept of what they're trying to do, but financially, why have these high-end guys when you're not winning so they make these trades for these younger kids? But the Dodgers are in win mode now, and you've got to love the additions of those two players. It really sets up that when we get to that, it, it looks like right now all three of those teams are going to make the postseason, but two of them are going to play in a one-game playoff, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And that is going to be something. I mean, that's going to be a whale of a game. 
Well, Turner, uh, although he may end up at second, he considers shortstop his natural position, but he's played third and center. He's just yeah. an awesome athlete. I mean, bottom he line, he's, he was the first-round draft pick, and the Padres actually drafted him, but he was in the, um, the Will Myers trade. That was how they lost him. So they've traded away a lot of, uh, a lot of prospects here to, uh, to get the guys they put on the roster, and he's one of them. So now he's a Dodger. Yeah. I'm excited to see what it ha- what happens over the final two months of the regular season. All right, there he is, PK. Little downtime, little vacation, but he's back at it full time on Monday. And PK, we will talk to you then. All right, see you guys. All right, coming up next, the Jazz general manager, Justin Zanuck, Jay Z, meeting with the media at about midnight to explain, or in the case of a couple questions, not explain what the Jazz are doing and why and what they like and what they're trying to accomplish. If you weren't up at midnight for this one, we'll let you hear it next on 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. The Big Show. The Big Show. With Jake Scott and Gordon Monson. Former BYU Athletic Director Rondo Felberg. I'm sure you found me a decade ago saying this was going to continue to evolve until we get to a point of natural stability. I still believe that a football-centric organization that has four 16-team leagues that include conference-based rivalries that lead you up to a conference playoff and then to a national playoff. And that's what the SEC's just done. I fault the Big 12 for not having done anything when they had the chance nearly a decade ago to actually be ahead of the curve on this, and they didn't. Catch the Big Show weekdays from 2 to 7, presented by Big O' Tires, the team you trust. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. Westwood One Sports presents this special update on the 2020 Summer Games sponsored by Bank of America Customized Cash Rewards Credit Card or in 3% cash back and online shopping. Before they even had the opening ceremonies in Tokyo, the U.S. women's soccer team was in a hole, having lost 3 nothing to Sweden, but the U.S. now into the semifinals after a thrilling win over the Netherlands, 3-2 in penalty kicks. Twice in the second overtime, the U.S. had goals taken off the board due to an offside. The Dutch had a penalty kick chance with 10 minutes left in regulation. It was stopped by U.S. goalie Alyssa Nayer, who who then made two more saves in the PK round. Novak Djokovic will not win the Golden Slam. All four slams plus the gold medal. He lost to Alex Zverev. Still would have needed the U.S. Open. Zverev will play Kareem Karcharov for the gold medal. American Connor Fields looking for a repeat gold medal in BMX riding in the semifinals. Fields went over his handlebars, fell on his face, got ridden over by two riders taken off on a stretcher. Fortunately, Fields is now stable. With this Summer Games update, I'm John Stashauer. Westwood One Sports. Updates from Tokyo brought to you by Zero Res. When, when you get the carpets clean, they're never just clean. It's Zero Res clean. Don't have it any other way. Just $33 per room clean plus a fourth room for free. You deserve the best. You deserve Zero Res. Schedule with Zero Res today by calling them at 801-288-9376. 801-288-9376. Or schedule online by searching for Zero Res Carpet Cleaning. All right, time now to hear from the Jazz General Manager, Justin Zanuck, meeting with the media at about midnight, the NBA draft in the books. Reporters know about the Derek Favors deal and are going to ask about it pretty quickly, and he is going to explain why he's not going to comment on it. Now we know that Derek Favors is going to Oklahoma City along with a first-round draft pick. Here is Justin Zanuck with the media. There's certain trades that don't get done until a league year and things. So they've done a new wrinkle in order to um, allow this. So 
I'm allowed to talk about Jared Butler. I'm allowed to say that we have a, an agreement in principle on his rights. There are other terms, and I cannot speak about those other terms. Um, is Jared going to be allowed? Is, do you anticipate him playing in some of the? Um, we're going to get him in here first, partly on, you know, again, when the trade's allowed to happen and all those things that are tied there. Um, and so we'll just follow the league um, rules and when we can get him cleared that way um, for that. So TBD right now, basically, obviously with the Salt Lake City Summer League and then Vegas, he'll, he'll be here. So playing, not playing, we'll take, you know, we'll, we'll take that by ear. Were you able to get him in for a workout? And if so, did Quinn see him? I mean, how many people could you have over there? So, Jared is, I'm really, first of all, in, in general, not avoiding the question, then it's more, um, I'm really excited for you guys and the community and the city and the state um, to get to know him the way we believe in him, not only as a player, but as a person. Um, he's a special, special guy. And his presence um we've just he's had a great career and he's been playing at the highest level for a long time he's gone through draft interviews we've followed him closely um you know we obviously have people in the organization that have a lot of baylor ties and uh, that gives us great comfort um to kind of have an, a, maybe a better just a really really good feel about him as a player and as a person so um, you know, with the COVID rules, with the compressed season and all those things, um, we've seen him plenty to be able to do it. Obviously, you had some of those health concerns that probably is the reason he was available at 40. What made you confident that those weren't an issue? We're comfortable with Jared as a player, as a person. Um, we're excited to add him as, as the Utah Jazz. I don't want to get into any other of those details. It's just that we feel really good about it. So we're excited to have it. What, what specifically stands out about his game that makes you comfortable about his fit here with the draft? So, look, and not to hedge on anything, we're, we're talking about a guy who's now about to become a rookie in the NBA with a highly competitive, championship-competitive organization. So he's got a varied skill set that he's displayed Um at the highest levels of college basketball with a lot of experience, played in really big games, has produced in big games, um, a great leader, a great teammate, and the multi-skilled aspect of his game uh, I think will fit well in, in what we ask our players to do here and what Coach does is to be able to dribble, pass, shoot, lead, um, guard, and he checks all of those. How much um how much did it help you in, in wanting to integrate him here that, you know, Jared you know, at the college level um, showed the propensity of being able to play both guard positions, the one and the two and be positionally versatile? Yeah. I mean, we've talked about that a lot, Tony, right? And all of us about in today's NBA positional versatility being able to, you know, he's a very, um, he's a very good athlete. He's physically strong, tough, mentally tough. Um, being able to put up with the grind of a season, you know, is new for any rookie, but, you know, he, in my opinion, probably one of the most well-prepared ones for the level of basketball he's had to play and maintain for the last few years. So 
you know, he's got as good a start head start as anybody that's coming in without ever playing in the NBA before. Excuse me. Would it be accurate to say that you wanted Jared uh, originally, yeah. and then you knew that you could probably trade down and be able to have him? So again, I can't get into sort of all the other, you know, and I know like I'm smiling to myself that I'm about to spout a bunch of like a hundred cliches of basketball. And, you know, I, I want to tell you that they are true and they are, but I'll be sitting up here at some other point too, probably, but he was somebody that we were really excited when we had a chance to get him. Like it was a no brain for us. Are you able to give us any uh, additional details on the details of the trade with no. the I can just say that there are other terms. I had to read, uh, Stephen Schwartz had to make sure to tell me what I could and couldn't do. We're all rookies here on this part. So <laughs> otherwise, we'd be here until like, I don't know, tomorrow, 6 a.m. <laughs> so going along with that, how different was tonight versus all the other ones that you've been with? I've done them a few times, yeah. you know, obviously with lots of great partners, mentors. Uh, we got a great group of guys that the front office and coaching staff, um, all very integrated, you know, doing the work like we've always done. Um, so felt more familiar. The thing that was interesting was that we hadn't had, even though we we had a draft last year, this feels much more like a normal process and, you know, more people in the room like it, it's been before. Uh, having Ryan Smith's presence here, uh, his energy, um, he's so committed to building a championship-level team. And, you know, the things, you know, obviously I've told you guys before, and you guys understand that the draft is only one part of how we build a team for next season. And we have to do that on multiple levels next season, two seasons from now, three seasons from now. All I can tell you um, Two things. One, we have a plan. We always have a plan, and we're going to go execute that to the best of our ability. And Ryan's resources and commitment to spending are going to be at levels that we've never done with the Jazz. Um, I can obviously be able to tell you more when team building so linked to the draft, free agency, trades, so that you get the whole picture. I don't even know what's going to happen, obviously, because there's a plan, and then some people have to say yes, some people have to say no, and then we can all sit here. So I kind of ignore the, like, hot takes, you know, <laughs> what draft picks associated with the Jazz or what this means or any other moves that happen to come out in the future. Like, it's just like take a deep breath and, you know, you can kind of give us your opinion when everything's done. That'll be the other hot takes. <laughs> Last year, we talked about wanting to find with Doe specifically kind of a skill that pops or one elite skill. Does Jared have that? And if so, what is it? Um, so, you know, look, every draft's different. And, you know, you guys do a great job, frankly. I read all your guys' stuff in terms of your own draft analysis and how everyone's different. Some of them are really strong at the top. Some of them are speculated that it's really deep from 20 to 40. It changes. And then we're all wrong until we really know what happens like three or four years from now. So to answer your question with Jared, I think the thing that really pops for him is just, I'm not sure that we're going to find out, you know, 
the speed is different in the NBA than college. The strength requirements, the physicality, the grind is different. How he develops and then what role, which, again, you know, this is a high-level team, a highly competitive team, a veteran team. So we kind of can give him a runway. But probably the thing that pops is his versatility about, I'm not sure there's a situation that he hasn't seen at some level. And he has the skill set, the physicality, the demeanor to be able to handle those new things really well. So probably less of a ramp up because he's just played more. He's experienced. You know, I mean, he's going to be your favorite. Um, maybe, I'm, you know, Jared will hear this and think I'm putting too high of an expectation, but I talked to my wife tonight, you know, she stayed up and uh, she's with grandma and the kids. And I just said, I think I found Lucy's new favorite player, my youngest, because she'll meet him and she'll be like, she'll have posters everywhere in her, in her room with him. You mentioned earlier your, you know, the Baylor connections that you guys have. How is that? I mean, I can't imagine that there's also not other teams with Baylor connections. Sure. Right? So, like, how does that make you so much more comfortable? I just think that, and I'm not saying, you know, every team does really good work. I think when you have relation, and we have a lot of relationships with schools, and I think we have, I'm very proud of our staff um, that does a really good job of like making sure that we have as much Intel information. Um, but we, we've had an opportunity just to closely follow that. Maybe some from personal ties too, not necessarily to Jared, but to the program that gives you a lot more confidence in the information you're seeing taking in. There's always a little confidence level of the information you hear, right? Maybe like your sources, like, Hey, there's a source here that's, 95% confident that you're good. And then there's one like, eh, 50. So it's different with, with Baylor, the program, the types of players they produce, the history of their program, how competitive they are. They, along with that gives us a very high confidence level of, you know, more of the personal stuff. Obviously watch the film workouts, measurements, those things you can make a basketball evaluation, but you're projecting humans. And I know I've said that to you guys before that you're projecting someone into a new environment, how they handle it. The NBA is completely different. You're going from a scholarship and college life to a profession and a job. And some guys are equipped for it. Some guys aren't. Some guys you think are going to be equipped for it. They aren't. Some you know, you're not sure and it works out great. So I think Jared's very well equipped to handle the next stage of his career and has the skill set to give himself a chance. What are you uh, looking for out of some of the, specifically with Doug, Elijah, guys who are essentially going into a second rookie year? Yeah, that's, that's exactly how I would term it, Tony. Um, COVID, the G League shortened season, untimely injuries for especially Elijah and Doug. Um, some of our own uh, health stuff where Trent didn't get as many games. Trent Forrest didn't get as many. He got some good minutes up here, but just the guys the year before, like Mie and Jarrell and Jawan, they got 50, 60 games plus time. So, and with how compressed the season was, like 
those guys aren't getting to play five on five even with the, when they've been with the team. They might get some three on three, some four on four if we even did that because we're playing the games just kept stacking up. So this is a real opportunity for them to play um, and just really feel a professional level. I felt it was, I said this, I think last year, I mean, we literally drafted guys and then they show up in Fort camp. I think it was like four days later in a year like this, even though it's compressed, we're going to get with Jared and Elijah and Doke and Trent probably 40 to 50 touches combining summer league and along with maybe the two or three weeks before we actually start training camp where they're with our health performance guys, they're in a group, they're playing. It's just going to be so beneficial for them. But it's not a, oh, he did A, B, and C in summer league or, or struggled with this. Like now we have to just make a decision. It's just this is the path of their development that they just didn't have that last year. So it's impossible to say. And we were a good team. So we weren't playing a lot of young guys. We were, there weren't that many opportunities to just like roll guys out and just say, okay, figure it out. And just first time we've gone to talk to you since changes. And I'm just kind of curious, generally, do you have or want to give a, a vision statement for kind of, <laughs> you know, what the jazz look like and, and kind of a, I don't know if it's a new era or how different it'll be, but kind of what do you, what do you envision for the team? Look, um, it obviously by default, whether I'm sitting up here or not, it's a, it's a new era because of Ryan Smith and his ownership. Um, and I've said it before, but I, I want to make it clear, like his energy and vision and commitment to the city and state and, and this team is going to pay huge dividends down the road. And he's willing and able to make those investments on a yearly basis, which is awesome. Um, my job is to continue to help him acclimate to this and get a chance to see how we operate. You know, he's, he's gotten a year under his belt. He's about to go into his second year and his insight, his instincts have been really helpful for us as we built a, a relationship. And I think that'll evolve over time, you know, but I think a lot of the, you know, a lot, some of that is a function of where our team is at right now, not just because it's new ownership. It's we're not a rebuilding team. We're not, you know, a, a playoff competitive team where we have championship aspirations. So, but that's been a lot of years of work where we, you know, gotten some things right and made some mistakes. And but you just keep going forward, and Ryan's going to help us continue to push that forward. So. I'll hold off on a definitive statement other than I'm really excited um, to be working with Ryan and what it, what that means for this community, the, the team, internal staff, coach, like all the collaboration, everything's been great. And uh, it's been a, a different transition, but a really seamless one in terms of the processes and how we make decisions. You said that Jared is going to be one of our favorites. Yeah. When you're doing... I guess the just one-on-one -on -one interviews with players in the pre-draft process, what is it that you're looking for? Me personally, um, and this, <laughs> I wish that there was an algorithm that you could say, hey, this guy checks A, B, and C, he will automatically be this. Um, you're still betting on humans. And then sometimes you really, really like people that you meet, um, and you have to kind of remove that from 
the basketball. This gives you good confidence. Like, okay, if he's good enough, then he's got a real chance. So we had made the basketball operate, you know, evaluation. He's more than good enough. We think he has a chance to be really good. And so to answer the question, when we're interviewing and trying to get to know guys, we make it pretty informal. We're not making them do a case study or, you know, read this chart or what do you think? What's this plot look like? We really just want to get to know them. But guys that demonstrate self-awareness of their own weaknesses, of things that make them happy, how well-rounded they are, what they like, um, the self-awareness part's good because there aren't perfect players that come into the NBA and there is a development path. So making sure that every, I guess when I say there aren't perfect players, it means every, every player that comes in has stuff to work on or get better or improve a strength or improve, you know, help work on a weakness. When you have a better idea yourself of what you need to work on and the self-discipline and the work ethic to address that, to be coached, like we have a pretty good player development program, but if guys don't put in the work or aren't working on the right things because they're not self-aware, then that's just a lot. It's not to say it can't be done, but it makes it a lot harder. So you can probably translate that Jared has a lot of those things. There is Justin Zanuck, Jazz General Manager. He's got a chance to be really good. I would only want to say how quickly, and Justin would not want to answer that because then you're piling even more expectations on him. But the future is now for the Jazz, so how quickly can he go? Now, he goes 40th. I read that he was middle first round. PK thought that he saw there was a 20. Everybody's got an opinion. None of that ever gets hashed out. Where he was going to go or not go, how much he could have climbed or how he would have fallen. Once he got identified as having a medical condition and he had to go to that panel of doctors, teams are dropping him hot potato time. So the Jazz at 40 thought it was worth a chance. They saw a lot of things he liked. His college numbers, shooting 41% from three. He's a good catch and shoot. He's excellent, but he's good off the dribble, too. Uh, I think I read 77th and 98th percentile. So that's pretty good. And self-awareness. How much better does he have to be? Because now he's going to be defended by bigger guys, guys running at him. Everybody's taller, everybody's longer, everybody's faster. Space on the floor is at a premium. But at least he's starting from a good place. And now how quickly can he get better? All right, there's Justin Zanuck. You mull that over. We'll be back with your feedback. Less about the draft. You have more opinions about Derek Favors getting traded. And we'll get to that next. Stay with us. Time for your feedback. Everything you have to say about today's show. I have to recommend the Ron Barker interview. If you haven't heard it, oh my gosh. Former head of governance. Handled compliance issues for the Pac-10 for and Pac-12 for 20 years. Worked for the NCAA for a couple of years. Former BYU assistant basketball coach. I mean, he hit on everything. Rick Majerus, Reggie Bush, Oregon, and the Willie Lyles case. He's writing books where he's putting the cases he worked on into a fictional narrative removing... And changing school names, coach names, player names. 
So it's not so much about the personalities, outing anybody, putting anybody under the microscope, but it does let you see how the whole system works, the whole ecosystem. Hey, you like that? You like that, yuck? That sounded highfalutin right there. How does it really work? What really goes on? What kind of issues are there? And he told stories about a coach helping two players cheat on a math test, specifically how they did it. I'm afraid some ne'er-do-well out there will now copy that. And then blackmailing the players going into a school they didn't want to go to and play for a coach they want to play for. Oh, you you got to go play for them. You cheat on the math test, and I know, and I'll out you guys. Oh, dirty. And so, then he got into a case about yeah. a star running back. Uh, this is a book that's coming compliance out. Compliance officer and a fair... Uh, finally proven by text message that were incredibly vulgar. Compliance officer quits and disappears. Meanwhile, player gets in an altercation with a former player at a nightclub, and someone is stabbed and dies. And, oh, my gosh. I mean, he just goes on. You, you got to hear it for yourself. So he did a podcast the first time I heard him, and he actually mentioned the fact that, and he mentioned during the interview, he processed about 250, he said, uh, claims a year, however you want to term it. Well, he's not going to get all these turned into books. But, but he meant, <laughs> no, but what he, what he meant by that is, it seems like average about 25, and a lot of them are really innocuous, somebody just made a mistake. He somebody said, makes a mistake, breaks a small rule they didn't even know existed. But he said, if there's a school or a program who suddenly is not reporting anything, that was a major red, red flag, flag to start looking into him. Like he said, you'd think... He says he can write two books a year. He's writing yeah. books based on, on, based on these cases, fictionalizing true-life NCA investigations. I was going to say true-life crimes, but in some cases that's true, in others it's not. So check that out. Uh, it's up there on our website, 1280thezone.com. If you follow uh, me on Twitter, David DJ James. Or the Zone Sports Network, at Zone Sports Net. The link's been tweeted out. You can listen to it. Yikes. Okay, we're getting a lot of uh, feedback here. A lot of feedback on uh, the trade. The Derek Favors trade. Favors to Oklahoma City. We just played, and it started with a, a question to Justin Zanuck, the Jazz GM, that he, he says he can't answer. Some trades can't be completed until the... New NBA year starts, so you can't comment on those trades. We had nothing to say about Derek Favors, but multiple reports out there about Favors and a future first-round pick to Oklahoma City. Josh says the math doesn't add up. Favors a first-round pick for a second-round pick. The year he's gone, the second defense was terrible. This year he stabilized it. This is a mistake. Well, we'll see, Josh. That's a beautiful thing, as PK likes to say. It'll all play out, but... His production was dropping. His health was not good. He was sitting on the bench with a heat pack trying to stay loose. He ta- It wasn't a secret. He talked about it in the Zoom calls. You could see it on the game broadcast. That's why he got asked about it. And he said some nights he feels better than others. Some nights he has that explosiveness in his legs and can get above the rim and throw down dunks and block shots. And other nights he can't. And that is trending in the wrong direction. He's not getting healthier. He is getting less healthy. We've seen that over his career. And he makes a good chunk of money. He's not in the top tier with the three best paid guys on the team, but he's in the next tier of four guys, and he was the least productive of the four. And his playing time is down to the non-Rudy Gobert minutes. And I think the Jazz, after watching the playoffs, thinking the non-Rudy Gobert minutes, they could be ready to go a different direction and match up with five guys out, and that's not favors. So I think that's where this is going. 
and they needed to save some money because Donovan Mitchell's getting a lot more money. And Conley, I don't know what he's going to sign for. He's going to take a pay cut. How much of a pay cut remains to be seen. And if he signs in Utah, remains to be seen. I would lean towards he does, but uh, I don't know that, and I certainly can't guarantee that. But wherever he is, it'll be for less money. So the Jazz needed to save a little money. So I think that's why that happened. A lot of you, he's my favorite. He'll always be a Jazz guy in my heart. I get that. Fans, they latch on to guys, and guys are their favorite for one reason or another, and he's certainly popular. I get all that, but I'm also not at all surprised by the trade. The Oklahoma City trade happened. There were rumors of talks with Sacramento. There were probably other things going on we haven't heard about. But I'm not surprised uh, that Favors has moved on. All right, even if the Jazz can't formally say that yet. All right, we're out of time. Hans and Scott are next. Have a good weekend.